The following program is presented by the Nerdy Show Podcast Network. Geeky programming for all nerds across the multiverse. All Nerdy Show programming is made possible by A Comic Shop, Orlando's number one comic shop and nerd destination. Nerdapalooza, the world's largest nerd music festival, and with the generous support of listeners like you. For more Nerdy Show podcasts, community forums, and learn how you can support this and other fine Nerdy Show programming, visit nerdyshow.com. Hi, my name is Astronautilus, and when I'm not busy twinking out uh, my druids in World of Warcraft and uh, painting all my figurines and my Space Wolves army for Warhammer 40k, I like to listen to Nerdy Show. Welcome to Nerdy Show, a weekly podcast dedicated to every facet of nerddom, from comics and video games to science and technology. If it's geeky, we've got it covered. And this episode is a Nerdy Show comic show. Hi, I'm Cap. Hey, I'm Aaron. And guys, this is going to be sort of a magical mystery tour of an episode. It's been a busy month. June has been crazy. And we have two awesome high-profile comic creator interviews in this episode, as well as audio from high-profile panels that we moderated at HeroesCon. (laughs) Yeah, we've been busy, man. These guys are high-profile, but they're also, like, friends of ours. So, like, it's kind of cool. They uh, they were literally here in in the studio. Yeah, we we, we got Jason Aaron, current author of Thor, God of Thunder, and uh, Thanos uh, Rising. Right. And also Rob Venditti, who took over for Jeff Johns for Green Lantern. Insane. Yeah. Like <laughs> yes. we, go, we got them in our humble Nerdy Show studio. And then shortly after, we jetted off to uh, Charlotte, North Carolina to go to Heroes Con. Where they both were and yeah. hung out with them there, too. <laughs> it was fun. It was awesome. And, and then I popped over to Los Angeles and uh, covered E3 for Bleeding Cool and Nerdy Show. I and didn't do that, but I went to the Retailer Roadshow with Jim Lee and Dan DiDio, and that was fun. Yeah, now that's a, that, when you told me about this, I kind of blew my mind. You said Retailer Roadshow, and I just thought, you know, bullshit Antiques Roadshow, like what right. is this? Like, is it, is it a flea market? But no, it's actually some kind of weird New 52 Fallout sort of let us try to figure out how we can make DC not a sinking ship kind of event with the heads of DC coming right. to, to various towns to talk like to retailers. Three of the five executive EPs. John Rude was there, Jim Lee, Dan DiDio. Jimmy Palmiani was there, but that's just because he lives in Tampa and right. was hanging out. Why but, not? Yeah, it was fun. And uh, they, they have their plans for the next several months and they laid them out and they said, you know, they see what wasn't working. They had this sales chart where it was up and down and back ticking up and they said, this was the first time they felt like they had something to present to us that they were proud of that they think took into all the feedback and everything into, but they still wanted our feedback. And I let them have it, man. I, I let Dan DiDio have it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was fun. What'd you say to him, man? Well, in one thing where he was describing, uh, it was zero year. And, um, you know, he was just running through these slides and some of the stuff was really cool. Like the Villains Month stuff was really cool. And Jim Lee seems like he busts Dan DiDio's balls. Like yeah. Dan DiDio had this thing for the, the Villains Month. And he came up with like, here's the 52 villains we're doing. And Jim Lee's like, what's wrong with you? There's no Joker on here. There's no Joker. There's no Sinestro. There's none, none of these big villains. And the deals are like, well, they're kind of off the table right now. It's like, what do you mean? You tell the best 20 page story you could possibly tell with that villain. Who cares if it's in like right now continuity? Fuck and, yeah. And he made him do it. He, that, and good. Cause I mean, that, that's exactly the kind of thinking that we've become associated with Dan DiDio of right. like, this is the box and I'm inside of it. Right. <laughs> you know, like, it's very nothing comfortable. Nothing outside of this box. <laughs> <laughs> so he's going to zero year, which is the uh, Batman uh, zero year, six years in the past where Bruce Wayne's becoming Batman, you know, the first time. Right. And um, 
in November. It's kind of a crossover. It's not really a crossover, but all these books are tying into Zero Month. And some of them are oddball books like Green Lantern Corps and Flash and uh, Action Comics. That's kind of neat because it doesn't have to tie into Bruce. It might. Maybe Bruce crosses paths with Jon Stewart six years ago, and that's what the Green Lantern Corps is. Maybe not. I don't know, but it sounds cool. And Dio had this offhand comment that sent him on a tangent with the mic, and he's like, and uh, none of this is ed- editorially driven, whatever the hell that means. I mean, I have a job. I mean, I do my job as an editor, and you know what? Do you think I'm not supposed to do anything? I mean, I mean like, he just had this little thing. So, you know, he was super defensive was to his own comment. To his own comment. Like, he got himself worked up from his oh my, own comment. Oh, my God. And so when it opened up to questions, I was, you know, a few in, and I was like, hey, you know, this editorial driven, that's the perception that fans have because of these creators walking off books and different things. And that perception should be something you take seriously and not just get defensive about. And uh, one way I think that you can really manage the perception and really make some some inroads is, uh, and this would fix all your problems, your problems with Vertigo and everything, is take these edge books, take these obscure characters and make a boutique and pick creators from image books that... Uh, have the same type of um, from, from image books yeah pick creators from image books okay that have the same type of uh voice and the same type of genre or something like like uh, justin jordan trad Moore, and luther strode put them on lobo like right. that type of thing like cockeye is kind of like a creator-owned book that marvel happens to publish has its own trade dress has its own feel has its own whatever and yeah, Hawkeye's people, unique flavor is why people like that book right. why people love that book you can put out a book with an obscure character an obscure concept and if it's editorially driven or if it's something that the editor pitched or whatnot and found a writer on, it's not going to rally people around it. You know, it's going to get the Gambit fans around it that are already Gambit fans and they'll be attrition, they'll leave. But Hawkeye has people that aren't Hawkeye fans and people that have built towards it because they're fans of this solid book. The fucks I could give about Hawkeye. They're right. practically non-existent. But, yes. the, but the, with this book. Um... The next issue, <laughs> the one that comes out this Wednesday, is all from the perspective of the dog. Like yeah, he, all, he saved a dog the color. In, in the early issues, and so this I've been hearing uh, for a dog. long time about how everybody loves this this dog issue. People who've read it um, before it came out, it's all the, what the dog smells and the words he understands out of every. You only you only hear like the words that he would understand from the dialogue, right? And you piece it together. You get picture images of his smells, and you piece the story together from that. As Amazing. if you were the dog. So <laughs> anyway, I'm saying that if. A creator was given the reins to do this any obscure character then they could build a fan base around that and the people that try image books are those people that would try a book like demon knights or whatnot these obscure concepts these edge books it's the same venn diagram the people that like image would like these obscure characters they're not going to go after superman batman green lantern and justice league most likely and uh, if you have these obscure characters and you want to get the fan base that is blazing the charts by east of west and all that stuff, you need to let those creators have their reign and give the perception that they do with these um, edge books that they have. And then you can put those creators on bigger books or you put those creators over to Vertigo and give them creator own Vertigo stuff after you built this relationship with them. So they don't go to image for their creator own because, you know, this is a DC roadshow. So I'm giving DC advice. Right. That's and, the whole point. Yes. And uh, he's like, well, you're comparing some of uh, image and, and Marvel's best books to some of our worst books. And, you know, that's not a real fair comparison. Wait, and, you compare Demon Knights to something. And he said that was one of the worst books. They're canceled books to these books that are successful, what basically. Fucking what, asshole. And, and I said, excuse me, what I'm doing is I'm comparing 
third string and obscure characters and off genre concepts to off genre third string characters. I'm doing it on a direct compare correlation to, you know, I'm not talking about success to success. I'm not comparing, you know, their Avengers book to your, you know, whatever book that got canceled that we like, like Dial H. Mm -hmm. I'm comparing an obscure concept to obscure concept. And he tried to wiggle out a couple times. And I, I understand that, you know, he's defensive. That's his job. And he said, like, people's perceptions of this and it spins around the Internet and what you think happened isn't what really happened. And I said, look, I'm not relating as a fan. I don't really care what happened or what people think happened or anything like that. I care about you guys creating the perception through positive PR that DC has some books that the creators can do whatever they want. They're not going to be replaced. The book will either live or die, get canceled or succeed based on that creator's voice. And you have faith in that. You're not going to replace the writer. The writer's not going to walk off. The book's either going to succeed or fail. And then he went on to another question. But Jim Lee talked to me afterwards. And because I even said, I was like, Jim's Wildstorm stuff only worked when it had a strong voice on it, when it had Alan Moore, Warren Ellis, Mark Miller, whatnot. And he said, yeah, it's all live and die by the creative teams. And I said, yes, but if you pick the creative teams while they're cutting their teeth, while they're smaller and put them on the most ideal thing for them to shine with your obscure characters, it'll work and it'll rally fans. But if you just give those creators the third string Superman book, if you give Justin Jordan Superboy like they did, instead of giving him Lobo, he's going to do an all right Superboy, but he would kill on Lobo. You know what I mean? Right. So instead of taking these creators that are, are cutting their teeth and getting hot at Image and putting them on their third tier Justice League Green Lantern Superman book. Which it's important to add are always very conditional books. They're always being mediated what they can and can't do. Yes. And they're always part of some crossover or part of some editorial mandate in right. a way. Yeah. Or even if it's not that, it's that head writer on the biggest book of that family. I'd say give them Adam Strange and let them see what the hell they're going to do with it. You know? <laughs> right. So anyway, that was fun. Um, That's really cool. Let's hope that um, the Aaron Holland magic will work again. And, and just as you can attribute yourself and the words you've said to uh, influential people to changes that have been made in the industry, let's hope that this right here, everybody can remember this and see that knows. happen. Everyone knows DC has some crazy awesome concepts that just quote unquote never seem to work. And it's like, well, uh, Animal Man worked under Grant Morrison and Animal Man works under Jeff Lemire. It never worked under anything before that, you know, mm -hmm. and Doom Patrol never worked before Morrison or since Morrison, really, yeah. you know, you have to have a creator with a voice for that wackadoo stuff for it to quote work. And basically the editors need to do a better job handpicking and drafting like, like it's a sports team drafting the creative team for that character and for that concept before it even gets solicited. It's just smart. It's what should be done. Right. Or why even do it? Just because you need 52 books and you don't want to make them all Batman? <laughs> <laughs> well, good on you, man. I'm really glad that, you know, you were actually able to give Dan Dio a piece of your mind. Like, we talk about it all the time, but you did it, so. Yeah, I went there dressed as Ted Cord too. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, in this episode, we're going to be interviewing Rob Venditti. We're going to be interviewing Jason Aaron. And uh, we're going to um, play audio from the Green Lantern panel that Aaron moderated featuring the entire creative team of every Green Lantern book coming out except for Orange Lantern. So that's, uh, we'll go down the list, I guess. Van Jensen on Green Lantern Corps, Venditti on Green Lantern, uh, Justin Jordan 
on New Guardians and Charles Soule on uh, Red Lanterns. Yeah, it was uh, a heck of a panel. We also will be playing clips from the Image panel we moderated and the Dark Horse panel we moderated, and uh, also talking about what books we're loving right now. It's going to be a uh, fat-packed episode, and we'll uh, <laughs> we'll see how much we can cram in here before it gets too big. Uh, so right now we're going to cut to a song. This is some new awesome chip tunes by Yours May called Dark Galactica. So, like we said, we got an interview with Jason Aaron. The man needs a little introduction, but uh, just in case you're unfamiliar, I guess the quick rundown is uh, he cut his teeth doing some indie work. He did uh, The Other Side, a book about Vietnam from both perspectives, and uh, most notably Scalped. He was creator own work about um, crime on Indian reservations in modern America. 
he's became one of the one of Marvel's architects. He did some great work over there, and in time, just got bigger to bigger books, like from Ghost Rider all the way to taking over Punisher Max for Garth Ennis, and now you know Wolverine and the X Men. Yeah, he shaped the X Men universe with Schism, and then he was a co writer on Avengers vs X Men and running Wolverine's life. Good yeah. stuff. <laughs> it's an incredible success story, and it's well earned as well. So uh, here's our interview with Jason Aaron. Hey, this is Cap. This is Aaron. And we're speaking with Jason Aaron. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. One of the biggest names at Marvel these days. Architect. Yeah, an architect. You were in that big photo thing with all those other cats. I don't know that we need to talk about that. (laughs) (laughs) It was a really awkward photo. It was a, it was a, one of my shining moments, I like to think. (laughs) As close as I'll ever come to being in a boy band. (laughs) Oh no, you're the bad boy. (laughs) I'm the the, uh, Donnie Wahlberg of the architects. (laughs) Dude, Marvel now has been really, really kicking ass, and in large part, it's been due to a lot of the books you've been writing. I was wondering, what's that whole process been like of setting up the relaunch of all the Marvel titles? It compares so vastly to DC's relaunch, and uh, there's so much more uh, creativity and so many more risks that are being taken with big titles. I was wondering how all that came to pass. You know, I I think it it was... Something we were actually talking about before we even knew what, what DC was doing with the new 52. It was in the works for a while. We knew that was kind of coming at the end of Avengers versus X-Men. And it kind of got bigger and bigger the more we talked about it. You know, everything kind of lined up right. And we'd had guys who'd been on some books for a long time, like Bendis was on Avengers for a long time, and Matt had been on Iron Man, and Ed was on Cap, and Jonathan Hickman was on FF. And it was all kind of lining up that these guys were all going to be wrapping up their runs around the same time. So kind of became this exciting few months where suddenly every book at Marvel was up for grab. So if there was something that you'd been hankering to write, suddenly it was the time to stake your claim to it. And I was in a little different spot in that I had just started X-Men. I don't think uh, Wolverine the X-Men was even coming out yet before we were talking all this Marvel Now stuff. And I just started Incredible Hulk too. So I, you know, I just kind of come off Wolverine, which I'd been on for a long time. So in the midst of that, I, I didn't know what I was going to be writing. I was kind of off of X-Men, you know, before it was even coming out yet. Um, but I, I felt that book was really something special with what Chris Pachala was doing. So I wanted to hang on to that and wanted to get to be a part of Marvel now in, in some sense. So Thor suddenly out of the blue became the thing that I was going to write. I'd kind of been penciled in as the guy to take over Captain America for a while. Mm. Like, uh, you know, once Ed was gone, I was going to do Cap. But in the midst of Marvel now, Rick wanted to do Cap. And suddenly I, I thought I'd really like to do Thor. That's pretty cool. I hadn't really thought of it as how organic it was that these great writers all told the story they had to tell on these characters. And now they can move on to other characters. And, you know, with DC, it was kind of, you know, obviously abrupt and arbitrary. It was like a car crash. Well, what I'm saying is it wasn't like all these writers had told their stories and now it's let's reshuffle the deck, Mm. even though, you know, it's 52. It was just really abrupt, really weird. Just felt so much more satisfying and organic with Marvel that the ends before that were those writers wrapping up their their super arcs and then this new launch. Thor was really good, you know? Like, I thought I liked JMS's Thor, but now, you know, I just think that's just lame. (laughs) I mean, seriously. (laughs) It was was good that he wasn't speaking old English anymore, Mm. you know? And and Coipel did, like, a great costume design, so he doesn't look like he's wearing, you know, his mother's drapes anymore. But, um, Jason Aaron, you did what I didn't know I wanted, and it just... Get rid of all those hangers on. Like Thor was essentially like Entourage. You know, it was like Thor and like all these other Asgardians during 
I'm not saying I didn't like JMS's yeah, run. I mean, it was it was what it was, and it was really good. But what we have now is it's, it's a Thor book. For anybody who's hasn't been checking it out, the basic rundown for the current Thor written by Jason Aaron is that uh, it is Thor in three timelines, both the reckless Viking god of the past and the current modern superhero, and also uh, a serious bearded yeah, beast like the in the king future. Slash old sage warrior Thor, and and you know what what I really want to say is like this made a lot more sense with the Trinity of these three Thors than than Christianity makes sense with the Trinity. You know, <laughs> it just it makes so much more sense. You know, like I can see that this is God in three persons. You know, you had young Thor and our Thor, and then the future Thor. It, that's perfect. But if, if that hasn't been obvious yet, it will be in the the next issue. I kind of hammer that nail pretty hard to make sure <laughs> that point gets across. I guess the the question I have for you is like what made you want to jettison all the other Asgardian cast members, at least for the time that you've done it? And, you know, why did you want to choose three Thors like that? Well, I mean, kind of what you guys are saying. I mean, I definitely wanted it to be a Thor book. I like the stuff that the JMS did and that Matt and Kieran Gillen did after that. But the, the cast did expand a lot and it did become more a book about Asgard and the politics of Asgard and Thor's big supporting cast. And I like that stuff and I will play with a, a lot of that stuff. But Especially at the beginning of this book, I wanted to focus in very squarely on Thor and and who is Thor and his name is the one that's on the cover. So why should we care? Why are we reading a Thor book? And to do that, I wanted to you know even go the extent of making Thor his own supporting cast and that we do three different versions of Thor, which also serves to make the story more epic. And that I think Thor stories, you know, you can go to a level of epicness and grandness that you can't do with Captain America and Spider-Man and other Marvel characters because he is a god, because he's been around for thousands of years and is going to be around for thousands more. Uh, And so it gave me the chance to do one big story that takes place over the course of uh, eons of the three different time periods that come crashing together. And, you know, then I get to, of course, to write dialogue of Thor arguing with himself getting to write old Thor, giving young Thor shit, I could do that issue after issue. Getting back to what you were talking about before with, I don't want to dump shit on the New 52. (laughs) I think if you look at the New 52, look at uh, Marvel Now, any of that stuff, any of the books that are really good that people respond to are just the simple instance of a creative team on the right character and having a solid idea and editorial saying, okay, just do that. I mean, I think that's what Batman is at DC. I think that's what the good Marvel Now books are. So there's no secret to it. It's just finding somebody who has a vision for that character and then letting them do that. The secret ingredient is the number one on the cover, though. <laughs> you have to put a number one on the cover. Well, sure. I mean, that's the gimmick of it. That's, right. <laughs> but you just got to have something to back up that that gimmick. And that, right. I mean, I, and I never the next issue is going to be number two, and it better be good or they're not coming back. Sure. But I, I mean, I never give a shit about the number on the cover, really. You know, my job is just to try to write a good story and it's it's marketing or the sales department's job to figure out how do you brand this and how do you sell it? I just worry about the story and I don't give a shit about what's in the little box on the cover. I thought it was ingenious what you did with Thor, though. Like, you know, with Wolverine, we really got into the depth of like what makes Wolverine tick and what's his bullshit, what's his, you know cover story what's what's his fake persona and what he is really on the inside you know and like really dug really deep into into wolverine and who he is through your run and i've it's the first time wolverine's really resonated with me you know i always liked him he was a badass but then with thor it's like well how's he really going to do that with thor thor's like this god and you know god's kind of like just a god you know he's kind of stood apart and when you made it so that the three thors is kind of like this is the masculine journey of thor this is thor young 
you know, here's Thor as a warrior, here's Thor as an old king, and just like, wow, Jason Aaron is smart. This guy, <laughs> this guy can <laughs> nail it. Like, he, he can make any character work, you know, because when I read that Thor, it's still you. It's still your voice. It's still your stamp on it. That's your writing style, and it's just on Thor. This is, this is awesome. Thank you. I mean, one thing is I, I never liked the idea that to get readers to relate to Thor, we had to bring him down to our level. I have some problems with the whole Broxton, Oklahoma and Asgard floating six feet above it. I don't think we literally need to bring these characters down and have them on our street corners before we can relate to them. I mean, I think what's great about the great Thor stories, you go back and read those the, when Lee and Kirby were out there doing their best stuff on Thor. It's not about dragging Thor down to earth. There's some of those stories where Thor's, you know, fighting the absorbing man and he's dealing with his life as Donald Blake. But a lot of it is about raising us up to Thor's level. So we get to follow him to Asgard and these wondrous places we could never go. And even in the midst of that, you can find a way to relate to this guy, uh, this god. But that's where I want to go. I want to follow him out on those stories. So this, yeah, this first whole two arcs of Thor, God of Thunder, barely any of it takes place on Earth. It's all about us following Thor out through the cosmos and through time and different worlds and encountering all these different characters and gods and god butchers. That's the kind of story I want to go on. And even in the midst of that, find ways of identifying with this guy. I mean, you know, you can break the, those three Thors down and you can identify with the guy who can never please his dad. And, you know, the kid who needs to grow up a little bit and the, the old guy who's fucked up his life. I mean, right. that's, that's all it is. I mean, it just played out on a different scale. <laughs> so does that mean you have a Superman story inside you somewhere? Uh, I, that maybe. I don't know. I mean, that's the, <laughs> if you say Batman, yeah, I for sure got a Batman story I could tell. A story Superman, that brings us up to Superman's level. <laughs> I mean, Superman is probably, in my mind, the hardest character in comics to write. And then after All-Star Superman, right. it's like, well, what the hell do you do? Like, that's kind of the be-all, end-all. That's the final word on Superman. Yeah, seriously. I mean, that's, I mean I'm mean, i excited to read Scott Snyder's new book. But, um, yeah, but I that, could see giving someone that as saying, hey, read All-Star Superman. And the story like, hey, what's a good Superman book? And then they read it and they're like, where do I go next? And it's like, it's you like, don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, how do you feel about a communist Superman? That's kind of cool, right? You know, you certainly don't give him death to Superman after that. No. Be like, oh. <laughs> you should never give them that. Right. Ever. <laughs> Wolverine and the X-Men has been a fantastic book since it started. It revitalized my interest in the X-Men in general. Um, after they all rose from the dead and got turned into vampires and whatever, I, I, I've been a devoted X-Men reader for years and years, well over a decade, and I completely stopped. I just didn't care anymore. It had gone too far. And Wolverine the X-Men was what brought me back into the swing of things. Cool. And, thank you. And it's been fantastic. I just want to thank you in person for um, the tribute you <laughs> gave to Triforce Mike in that one issue. That was really, really great. It meant a lot to us all here and the listeners of the show as well. One of the things I love about it is what a return to form it is to uh, Grant Morrison's run on X-Men, which is without question one of my favorite periods of, of X-Men continuity. And one of the things that allowed it to happen in general was that um, all of a sudden there were mutants again. And I remember when mutants were done away with, there was this kind of like joke is out of shit list of like, uh, I hate Peter Parker and Mary Jane. There's too many mutants. You got to get rid of this. And then it, one by one, checked them off the list. And now we've got mutants back and we're getting the same energy back from when there, there were so many mutants. And we had great books like District X and all that. What's it been like behind the scenes with that whole thing being repealed more or less? I wasn't there when, when they did House of M and cut the number of mutants down. I can mm -hmm. see what they were thinking. And there certainly there were a shitload of mutants at the time. Really, any of the sort of metaphors you wanted to play with of this being a persecuted minority didn't really play when there are millions of them and they have their own cities and they're the coolest kids in, in the Marvel universe. So I can understand 
when they cut that number down. Yeah, it was nice to get to that point where you can just do those classic X-Men stories of a new character dealing with the emerging powers. You know, Mm -hmm. that's kind of, for me, that's sort of the basis of the X-Men is that metaphor of hitting puberty and you're the weird kid in school and all that kind of stuff. So it's fun to be able to play with that again. You know, and we still try to be restrained in how quickly we roll out New Mutants so we don't just go crazy with it. Yeah. And some of the ones I'm rolling at are pretty weird ones that uh, who knows what will happen with them in the long run. But, you know, I mean, I wanted to inject some more weirdness back into the book. You know, I wanted it to be a fun book and I wanted it to be weird. That's why accomplished. Yeah, totally. (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. (laughs) Um, That's why it's got, you know, the old blurb on the cover of the strangest heroes of all. That was the whole mandate coming out of Schism is to make it more lighthearted. You know, the X-Men, there's a lot of navel gazing in the X-Men over the years. A lot of people standing around talking about weird, complicated relationships that you have no idea what they're talking about if you haven't been reading X-Men for 30 years. So I just wanted to do something fun and accessible and and it's weird and it's dark at times and sometimes it's just outright silly, but I've loved everything I've gotten to do on that book. And, you know, it's kind of the perfect time for me that I'd done some really dark, depressing Wolverine stuff. And it was nice to be able to cut loose and do some silly shit. And, you know, I talk about Mike and I was, you know, happy to be able to dedicate that issue to him. You know, it was a sad day. I mean, I didn't know Mike nearly, you know, as much as you guys did. I only met him a couple of times, but just as a comic book writer, you know, and knowing him as a, as a dude who worked in the comic book store, he was one of those guys you were happy to know was out there pushing comics on people. He was a good missionary for comics. So I like to think Wolverine, the X-Men, you know, was a book that Mike liked and the, the kind of book that Mike was into. So, yeah, no, it's a, absolutely, it was absolutely his cup of tea. So that, thanks again. It was just really a very fitting tribute. I, I like to think Mike would have liked the uh, dupe issue. Oh yeah. Mike all the dupe <laughs> oh yeah. Issue. Yeah. He loved dupe <laughs> dupe and uh, Howard the duck. The stories that you're doing in Wolverine and the X-Men really needed that mandate lifted, you know, of the no more mutants or whatnot, or, or at least part of it. Like you were saying, the ability to create yeah. new mutants is so in- integral that, to the that's X-Men That's part of experience. what I really like about that. It's really cool. Um, I did agree with um, Quisada that writers could get lazy and you just have like a power and a code name and a costume and yeah. then you have a character and there's no real characterization. There's no real personality. There's no nothing. So I, I get that, but... It was an enabler for sure. Yeah, it just seemed like uh, you put a good writer on something and he's not going to put out crap. And I loved what they were doing with the um, the aesthetics, you know, X-Force aesthetics, mm-hmm. where they were they were actually pushing that metaphor. Like, sure, the metaphor is like we're this minority that's oppressed, blah, blah, blah. You know, that's kind of played out when they're super cool and popular. But then they had it where, you know, they were like the um, the blacks could perform at the hotel as celebrities, but they couldn't stay in the hotel. You know, and that's what aesthetics, that's, that was the, the metaphor that the X-Men were going for a while there before House of M was they're getting more acceptance, but at what cost, you know? They were still a novelty. They're still a, a kind of sideshow thing. And I was just digging that, but, you know, whatever. I'm digging Wolverine the X-Men more, so. Well, you know, you got to change the shit up from time to time. Um, these characters have been in continuous publication for decades fans on the one hand want what they liked when they were kids or what they liked when they got into comics. It's like every X-Men fan, especially has this idealized version of the X-Men. It's usually whoever was on the team when they first got into the book, but you know, you can't just have the same thing over and over again, especially now there's so many X books, you know, you got to try to give them different flavors. 
So I've, I've been grateful to the X-Men fans who've responded to Wolverine and the X-Men because it is such an unusual X-Book. It's not one we've seen in a while. But I've been grateful that, that so many people have, uh, have, have dug it. So we first got to know you as a name in comics via your creator-owned work, and it's been a while since we've seen anything. Uh, is there anything forthcoming in the, as far as like uh, non-Marvel work? Yes. <laughs> That's about all I can say. I've been working on stuff really since Scalped ended. You know, Scalped was like six years of my life. Mm. So I, right after that, I wasn't really ready to jump into another big 60-issue creator-owned project. But I was already working on the next thing, you know, around the time Scalp wrapped up. So it's a little harder when you're putting out your own stuff or even find it, figuring out, deciding where you want to do creator on stuff these days. It's not like um, doing work for higher stuff. So it's all in the works. It's coming. There's a couple things that you'll, one you'll hear about probably in a month or two. Next one you might hear about later this year, next year. But yeah, there's stuff written, stuff being drawn, stuff coming. I have to be able to write comics where I can curse, you know, right? Right. Go crazy otherwise. You, uh, you absolutely killed it with the uh, the Punisher Max thing. I mean, literally, you. you <laughs> I, I, I got to curse a lot in that book. Yeah. Um, I hadn't been following any of the news or anything. I didn't realize as, as I was reading the book that you were actually gearing up to end the series and kill the Punisher that Garth Ennis had created and all that. So when it happened, it was a big surprise for me. I was wondering, what uh, what was Garth Ennis' take on that? Have you guys spoken at all prior to your run on Punisher Max? Yes, I've, I've spoken with Garth a handful of times. Uh, he's a super nice guy, the nicest guy in the world. He liked the, the Punisher stuff. It's always like the best congratulations or pat on the back I could get is an email from Garth, like saying thumbs up, good job. Like that still makes me all giddy like a schoolgirl. <laughs> um, <laughs> So yeah, he was cool with the the Punisher stuff. You know, I mean, then in my mind, the way he had set Punisher up with Punisher Max, which is, you know, one of my all-time favorite Marvel books. I think one of the best runs on a Marvel character anybody's done in recent years was, Absolutely. was Garth's, you know, what, 60 or so issues of Punisher Max. But, you know, he set that book up where Frank Castle was aging. Um, you know, he was still a Vietnam veteran. There were very, very specific dates put down and he was getting older and and that character could not just continue on and on and on for years. Like he, in my mind, we had to see that character meet his end at some point. So I knew I wanted to write that story. So my Punisher run from the first issue was always going to end with him dying. That's why I pitched Axel on a subway ride to Coney Island back in the day. So that was always the story. I knew this guy's got to die and I want to be the one to kill him. (laughs) And and they said, yes. What I like most about Garth Ennis's run was that, he didn't become the Punisher when his family was killed. He became the Punisher in Vietnam, and he just pretended to have his shit together until his family was killed. And he's like, oh, time to stop pretending and go kill people because I'm crazy. I love that, you know, because people's <laughs> families die all the time in real life, and they don't become the Punisher. So, you know, the, it, the inciting incident that he became Punisher was in Vietnam, and I love that. But then you had your fold in there that really stuck with me, and it's like, what, I just have this this weird willing suspension of disbelief or this, like, dumbass comic trope things of like how did he survive vietnam in the bush and all that but yet like these guys got a drop on him in in a clear-cut park and killed his family and he's like oh whoops and with your story it was just so perfect that if he was already punisher before they're dead you know his head wasn't in the game his mind was somewhere else he his family was sort of a, a burden his family was sort of you know he was going through the motions and it was just so perfect i mean i can relate with that some, you know, because I've been divorced 
And, you know, each day you're like, oh, man, you know, I, I might as well just sleep on the floor. You know, this bitch, I don't want to sleep. Like, you know, so like I could, <laughs> I could relate to it, but there's just something stuck with me. Like, that's perfect. That's the perfect explanation of why these guys got the drop on Punisher and were able to kill his family. It was just so poetic in how brilliant it was. I'm, awesome. Thanks. <laughs> no, I mean, I, um, I don't, you know, I don't gush over every thing that that no, you've keep done keep going keep going but I didn't, I didn't that, that fold in there i thought was just as good as the um that he became punisher in vietnam that <laughs> was just like oh yeah that well thanks i mean it all goes back to gar stuff i mean you go back to punisher born you know gar's story of frank in vietnam and by the end of that story you know you've seen like frank is the punisher like right. he is that dude and you know it ends with him coming home and embracing his family and you just wonder like well, what is the next page after that and he can't just flip that switch and turn it off and suddenly he's Frankie Castle, and he's taking his kids to baseball games and grilling burgers in the backyard. Like, that's not going to happen. This guy's going to struggle to find his place in the world. And what is that family life going to be like? And so I like that idea of, you know, we always just have this sort of idealized version of Frank Castle's family life and that he loved his family. And then one day they were killed and taken away from him. And he's, and that's when he said, fuck it, I'm going to kill all the bad guys. Right. So I like the idea of family life wasn't perfect and ideal. Like, it was fucked up. And he got to the point where he was ready to walk away from it. And that's the moment they're taken away from him. So it's not just anger. It's there's this tremendous amount of guilt that's driving him to do what he does. Yeah. Anger just lasts so long, but like guilt and shame is like this renewable resource that <laughs> comes at you every morning anew. Do you have shit you need to confess, Aaron? <laughs> no, I'm just saying that it's a much more powerful motivator than just anger because anger can dissipate, you know? <laughs> no, but... You might have some issues we need to talk about. Yeah, I'm I'm sensing something. Yeah, well, we can move on to Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's do that. Let's do that. Let's change the subject, Aaron. Everyone likes Thanos. Yeah. So basically, your take on Thanos was, you know, Thanos was Hitler, right? No, no. <laughs> that was I a mean, face. <laughs> nah, I read the first issue. He was an artist, and you know. <laughs> Again, the 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 stuff I'm doing with Thanos to me, it all goes back to everything that Jim Starlin set up. You know, Jim Starlin laid out a lot of Thanos's origin. Like I, I'd seen some people online. I got a couple bad reviews for Thanos rising. People said, oh, we shouldn't tell this story. We don't need to know this about Thanos. It should be left mysterious. <laughs> but the problem is it's, that's never been mysterious. You know, his background and his relationships have always been a part of who this guy is. He was never the blahaha bad guy who would show up and with these gems on his fist and say and right. crush the good guys. It's helped me come to terms with Thanos a little bit because, you know, I've always known that, well, he's the mad Titan and he comes from this idyllic society on this moon that we never really knew was there for some reason and has seldom lingered on. And now they're all dead. And, uh, and he's a freak for some reason. And it's all been, every time I've seen it interpreted in brief has all been really vague and made me think, well, this guy's obviously got some shit story. So I really need to pretend that it doesn't exist and just look at the monster that is in the present here. But instead, I've got something really compelling to, for my mind to go to now. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, Starlin laid out these bits and pieces in several different stories over the course of many years. And I mean, never was there one full origin story of right. Thanos that told everything. So I, I kind of took these different pieces and threw them together uh, and filled in a lot of the gaps. Um, but, you know, the idea of Thanos murdering his own mother, that came from Starlin. He contradicted himself. He told a couple of different ideas for how Thanos' mother was killed, but I went with that one where he butchered her. <laughs> it's so, fucked yeah, up. It, it's, it's a fucked up story you're telling. But he's still, you know, to me, he's, um, you know, certainly when he starts out, he's a, a sympathetic kid, which I love villains who start out as sympathetic kids. Most um, of them do. Right. I mean, you can <laughs> relate to most everybody as a kid. You don't usually, nobody comes out of the womb and is fucking 
Hitler from day one, you know, that shit happens for different reasons. So I like to see the forces that shaped Thanos to become what he became and, you know, to put that romance front center in it, because I mean, that was the, right. what made Thanos interesting uh, through all those Jim Starlin stories is that he was a romantic, like he was doing this shit because he was so madly in love with this woman who just happened to be the <laughs> personification of death. The mad um, love Titan. So I'm, you know, I'm playing with that shit a lot and, and you know, there's some, surprises to come in regards to that relationship as well in the next couple of issues well that's a pet uh, peeve of mine is when the reviewers show that they don't have actual knowledge of the comic that character before the comic they're reviewing you know that's just a oh it pisses me off you know which you you know to read this comic and review it you don't need that um you know you should you should be able to pick this up and you don't need to know who the fuck thanos is um but certainly you can't criticize it for introducing something that has been around, you know, as long as the character has been around. Mm-hmm. You could, but it would be <laughs> invalid. I love it when people say, like, that's just my opinion. I was like, no, that's factually inaccurate. It's not just your opinion. Your opinion is factually inaccurate. Oh, it bothers me. Is it public knowledge of uh, what you wanted to name your son before? <laughs> because your wife told me and it was quite I, funny. Yeah, I think it is. Because what I wrote. Uh, the intro for, for Tim Callahan, you know, who's written some of the books about Grant Morrison, like Grant Morrison in the early years. I wrote an intro for one of the new printings of, I think it was a Grant Morrison in the early years book. And I mentioned it in that. It's Grant. I was going to name my son Grant. He was going to name his son Grant Morrison Aaron. And no, not Grant Morrison Aaron. <laughs> That's what your wife said. But he was going to be Grant Aaron. Then my wife realized I was naming him after a comic book writer and put the kibosh on that. Uh, so instead he became Dash and then I named the main character in my book after him and made him a drug abusing mother hater. It says right. revenge against my wife. <laughs> yeah, she mentioned something to me that um, you and her were talking about um, things that might happen to Dash the character and that your son might have overheard and was freaking out. <laughs> right. Well, he, he, he'd finally gotten to that point where he's old enough. He'd recognize his own name and realize what the hell we're talking about. <laughs> And it never really crossed my mind that sometimes I'm talking about Dash, my son. <laughs> and then one day I'm mentioning that Dash, my character, got shot in the face. <laughs> and my son hears it and says, what <laughs> the hell are you talking about? Uh, yeah. So, yeah, it was a confusing moment for him. You met Grant Morrison, right? You met him. I've met him a couple of times, yeah. yeah. I what? haven't told him I would try to name my son after him. Right. <laughs> that would have been a cool story. I'd be interested in how he would respond to that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still like a little giddy schoolgirl whenever I talk to Grant, especially, you know, talking to Garth kind of the same way, like those guys, two of, two of the guys are kind of the faces on my Mount Rushmore of comic book writers. Because you chiseled Alan Moore's face off of it. <laughs> no, no. Alan Moore's still up there, you know, for the work he's done. It had hugely influential on me. It's just, just some other shit joke. he says yeah. that I don't, that I disagree <laughs> with. Um, but Garth and Grant, you know, also two of the nicest dudes I've ever met are both super sweet, super down to earth. Grant, surprisingly down to earth. You know, you expect to meet that dude and the weird shit coming out of his mouth that you can't possibly understand, but uh, really nice, really easy to talk to. But I still get super nervous around those dudes. I just turn into a fanboy. Oh, I can relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now we're going to cut to a track. And uh, when we get back, things are going to get real DC heavy because we're going to interview Rob Venditti. This is a track called Thinking Cap by Platinist. It's a remix from Sonic the Hedgehog 3. It's about people thinking about you? Maybe. Maybe. 
We're talking to Rob Venditti right now. With us in the room, in addition to myself, Cap, we got... Hi, I'm Hex! Hi, I'm Adam. Hi, I'm Aaron. So, Rob, uh, this is a pretty momentous occasion. This is the very day that uh, Green Lantern has been handed from Jeff Johns after nine years over to you. That's pretty huge. <laughs> How do you feel? Yeah, I mean, obviously there's a lot of pressure involved, you know, really big shoes to fill. Shoes that honestly can't be filled, you know? I mean, yeah, I mean, he's, (laughs) he wrote the book on the characters literally over the course of a hundred plus issues or whatever have you. And so for me, it was never about trying to compete with what he did or anything along those lines. Uh, You know, it was just me trying to come in and tell stories the way that I like to tell them and hoping that people like the result, you know? Jeff has been great about it. He's he's a super nice guy, really cool guy to talk to, great resource. And um, something he did that I thought was really cool was on the last day, or the day that Green Lantern 20 was in stores, he had FedEx to me so that I would receive that day this big Green Lantern like prop that you put the ring on and hold it up to the lantern and it awesome. glows and everything like that. And so little things like that, you know, he's just, he's just really a stand-up guy. That's really cool. Coming into the role of writing Green Lantern after all that time, did they give you stuff to sort out? They're like, okay, so... So you're coming on this. You got all this bookkeeping we got to do. So we need you to do these things. And then you can tell your stories. They're like, was there any house cleaning you had to do? No, I mean, they told me where things were going to end. You know, mm-hmm. they, when they first approached me about pitching for that, it was probably, I don't know, I'd have to look it up. But it was probably around October of last year. So it was a while ago. And so they told me what was going to happen and the issues that were going to transpire up until the point when I would be taking over with 21. I don't even know if it was understood at that point of which issue I would actually be taking over at. They didn't know exactly yeah. when I was going to be coming in. So they told me the things that were going to transpire. And I read documents, like sort of internal documents about what storylines were going to go and things like that and so I, I based my pitch on on those kind of events where i would pick it up from there because you, you obviously want to have a flow it is a monthly title totally yeah you want to have a transition be smooth and so on those kinds of things but they never said you have to do this or don't do that or or any of those kinds of things and you know honestly some of the ideas that i have and things we'll be doing in the next few months you know sort of leading up to the first major arc which will take us through october some of it's you know i, I think it's pretty risky stuff and i think it would have been understandable for them to say you know, hey, we don't know if we want to do that, but they've been really good about uh, creatively just letting me do what I wanted to do. So are you on this indefinitely until you decide you're done or they kick you off? Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things, you know, it's like any other work for hire gig I've ever had, you know, like mm-hmm. X-Men of War or anything like that. I don't go into it saying I'm only going to do it for X number of issues and they don't tell me you're on it for X number of issues. Right. You know, it's one of those things where I'm on it until I run out of ideas or they fire me, you know? Right. So that's kind of the way it but works. you are an exo man of war pretty I'm, much indefinitely. Yeah. Well, I mean, until I run out of ideas or they fire me, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's not like there's any paper that's well, signed between anybody that says you're going to do it for this long or whatever. I heard the you know? guy say, and I won't name which guy, whether it was Dinesh or, mm-hmm. or the guy, the other the guy, guy. Yeah. Or, or the other guy. <laughs> sure. But I think I made some joke that his Green Lantern might bomb. It was at the dinner table, whatever, and he's like, well, even if this Green Lantern does bomb, we're not going to fire him off XO. We'll, we'll keep on the Well, I mean, they say that now, but I mean, six, <laughs> six months from now, my XO could suck and they could fire me. You know right. what I mean? So, I mean, that's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you know, you. Yeah, you know, Diddy name. Yeah. I mean, as long as I keep writing stories and they keep liking them, I'll be on the book. But at any point, they could decide they don't like them and I'm gone. And right. that's the nature of work for hire. So, But somehow you beat in a pitch out other writers for Green Lantern. And I, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, probably. But your pitch had to be so good that they were willing to take you off a of Constine and put you on this. And then 
do whatever they had to do with Constantine because originally you were solicited on that. Yeah, it didn't really happen exactly like that. It was more of, uh, it, and it's kind of a confusing, so I'll try to lay down the timeline for you guys because I don't know if I've ever done this publicly before, so it'll be nice to have the timeline be sort of official. <laughs> That'll but, help. It'll make sense in yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> so I pitched for Constantine. I was given Constantine. And then they asked me if I wanted to do four issues of Demon Knights, just sort of like a fill-in stint before Constantine was actually on the stands. <laughs> and so I pitched for Demon Knights, and now I was going to be writing these two books. Demon Knights I was only supposed to do for four issues, and they asked me to pitch for Green Lantern. And so I pitched for Green Lantern, and I got that as well. But then they decided they wanted Demon Knights to continue. They didn't want me to just do four issues. They wanted me to stay on it. And so then it was like, okay, well, I've got three books plus Exo Man of War is four books. Like, wow. I don't want to go from one to four. I'd rather go right. from one to three and figure out I have time to write four mm -hmm. and then go from one to four and figure out I, I was only fast enough to write three. So which of these two books would you guys want me to stay on? And I really wanted to stay on Demon Knights because I was having so much fun with the book. It was unlike anything I've ever done before. It's unlike anything I will ever do again. I mean, <laughs> right. these, are, these are characters that are never going to come back around. So, Dude, um, I just want to say while we're here, I love that book. <clears throat> I appreciate it. Thank Shit, you. Let me do another take of that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it's, uh, it felt so honest the way you coughed that out. Like it's so, I love it that so book. <laughs> I'm so sorry to say it was the intense pickle um, <laughs> it uh, comes back at you yeah, no I, I, seriously like like i liked the book before and i love the book when you got on it it's i appreciate it i'm, I'm really sorry that's ending like yeah i'm crushed a it, it, i think niche books are just kind of hard you know mm. and that's just the way it is but i knew when i took it on and i knew when i decided to stay on that and not do constantine that it was a you know month to month you never knew what was going to happen with that book but again they're characters that I'm never going to have a chance to write a character like Horsewoman again or anything like that so mm -hmm. I've been very careful about everything I've ever done in my career every job I've ever taken has been a job I wanted I never took one for a paycheck or whatever have you and so Demonites was the book that I wanted to do and DC wanted me to keep me on it and so that's how I ended up with Green Lantern and Demonites as opposed to Constantine so mm. well, that makes sense yeah. <laughs> I'm curious though if you can reveal it what your uh, pitch on Constantine was kind of like yeah you know I don't know if I can uh, i'd be happy to if i could but i don't know legally if i'm allowed to right you know? yeah, and, and who knows some of that stuff may come back around i actually turned in an issue i wrote an issue and everything so oh, wow. um yeah. you know who knows i would love to be able to go back and take a crack and do some of those things so one thing i was going to do was i was going to have him um be in a bar in new york city there was like a really bad version of what an American thinks an English bar is like. <laughs> Where like there's Scottish kilts on the wall and like four leaf clovers and stuff. But it's like the only bar he can hang out in because it's the only place that won't kick him out for smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and so like he's forced to sit there and like listen to Coldplay and do all this stuff. That, like awesome. Americans think is awesome, but is really completely fake. And, and that's because there's, a, there's actually a pub that's not around anymore. It closed down near where I live in Georgia. That was exactly like that. It was like they had British bulldogs and Scottish kilts and <laughs> just this amalgam of all these different things and you know so I, I thought English be, muffins yeah it'd be funny <laughs> to put them in a, in a setting like that there's you know? a whole like Hooters knockoff chain restaurant called yeah, Tilted, Tilted Kilt Tilted, right, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the same yeah. crap yeah uh, it's Hooters yeah essentially pretty much yeah, yeah. With, yeah. without the well, wings and yeah. there's one that really personally offends me there's one that just opened a place in Orlando it's called Twin Peaks uh, but it's all about boobs and the Pacific Northwest, and yeah. they have a logo that's mysteriously similar to Twin Peaks. And I'm like, there's no connectivity here. <laughs> this is just really offensive. <laughs> Nerd cultural appropriation right there. Ugh. I guess. I don't know. Who, who's their audience for that reference? <laughs> But anyway, so other than that, I, don't, I probably shouldn't say what some of the other stuff was going to be. So sad, understandable cool. though. Yeah, you should get back to that though, because um, one thing when Jason Aaron was here, I was like, Jason Aaron did two issues on Hellblazer that he got to write Constantine before you know it got canceled, mm -hmm. and 
what he did was had uh, Constantine have sex with a dead dog. Um, just some magic that made <laughs> him think I it was a woman. I wasn't going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> because I felt like it would have been derivative. Yeah. You know? right. yeah. I understand. You can do a cat, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> Even then. Yeah, but I mean, Jeff Lemire and Ray Fox, they're, they're really good buddies of mine. I've known them for a long time. You know, I don't know if you guys know, but I started out at Top Shelf working in their mailroom. And so I've known Jeff and Ray for a long time. Ray Fox has a book that's been in the work at Top Shelf for a long time as well. So I was really happy. Uh, I was already working with those guys on Constantine because they were doing Justice League Dark. And so it was really cool for them to be able to take it over. And I think they're doing a great job with it. This most recent issue where like the whole idea of like the whole city of London is trying to kill Constantine, you know, stuff like that, I think is really fun. So yeah, they were the best team to put on it on short notice. And, you know, cause they were doing Justice League Dark anyway. So. It's a heck of a pickup great. job given the time they had to work with. Those guys are, are just idea machines. You know, I, I would never profess to be the kind of writer who, you know, some guys are just idea after idea after idea after idea. And, and Eisner's and, too. Good point. I don't have those either. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> appreciate you putting the fine point on that. But, um, do, you have, do you have any nominations? Uh, not a one, no. But, uh, you could ask him if you want. He, he probably seems to know all of my, all, all of my shortcomings. Um, You're run on Green Lantern. I know that Jeff Johns is the greatest guy in the world. I like him. He's very affable. You know, he put Nort in the... The last issue for me, he gave you a... That's a, true. Can we address that formally on the show? That you exchanged text messages with Jeff Johns confirming that he put Nort well, in that issue for that, you? I had sent texts and photos to him begging or demanding for Nort to be in his run, like yeah. over years. And whenever I saw him at cons or, you know, Megacon bar or different places, I just tried to pitch him ideas of how he could incorporate Nort into his storyline. <laughs> like, the, the first year we went to E3 and we met up with him in Los Angeles, we too had a Nort discussion. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> just, Jeff had this irrational, like, distaste for Nort. Like, I think maybe he had a dog as a young boy and his parents, like, put it to sleep. He put Nort in, the, in there and, and a little joke that, like, ah, it took you long enough. And he's like, better late than never. It's Freaking perfect. Let's say Jeff Johns is the nicest guy in comics. Let's just start with that. Okay. How dare he do a book called The End at the very end? Have it say The End on the last page. Do you have any uh, Um I guess, I mean, I think what you're probably trying to ask me about is, is at the end, no, no, at the end where it sort of shows these futures of what happens to all the characters and you're sort of, you know, in a sense, maybe reading like um, you you know, their the, happy the last page of a book or something along right. those lines. So the way that I interpret that scene when I read it was we weren't being shown some unassailable vision of the future, right? We were being told what the future is as it's recorded in the book of oa which we already are told in that very same scene has had pages torn out of it and burned <laughs> regarding sinestro so this is not the entire story it's like the bible it, it's like any <laughs> i'm not going to say that but it's, it's, like, it's like any it's like any history book though history books are written by people that have an agenda like who wrote the book of oa for a long right. time it was probably the guardians right so who knows how accurate the information in the book of oa is so from my perspective as a writer i'm not saying those things aren't going to happen and I'm not saying they are going to happen, but in one way or another, there's a whole lot of living that's going to take place regardless from the end of Green Lantern 20 into whenever those futures do point. or do not happen. Right. And so that was the way that I read those things. And however we get there, we get there. But, you know, there's a lot of things that are going to happen in the meantime. And, and from my perspective, what we're going to cover in this first arc that's going to carry us through October would be specifically the type of material that somebody who was recording a history book with an agenda would not want to include in that <laughs> book of history. You know? Like, like the so, Germans' Lord. record of the Holocaust. Again, I'm not going to touch that. No, but they, they, yeah. they just gloss over the whole sure. thing in Germany. So. No, I'm serious. I, I know, Aaron. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's, that's <laughs> I know. 
It's not that I don't believe you. I know. So, 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 I, so that's the way that I, I, I look at the end. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, my response to a, a nerd complaining about that to me, you know, a fanboy was like, dude, the Legion is in the future. How many times has their future been rebooted? You know, how many right. times that, mm-hmm. you know, the, there's these crazy reality altering events that these characters engage in that can alter the future easily and even without you know yeah just, you, you yeah know. and you know I, i'm not overly familiar with the legion or anything like that but i would say specifically the idea that this history is recorded in a book and that's what we're being read to me makes it a very subtextual scene and a very subtextual thing that you can deal with in the future because now you're talking about history as it's mm. written by the victors and what is that version of history and all of these kinds of things. So it becomes an actual element of the storytelling as opposed to, like I say, you're going into the future and actually witnessing an event. Well, right. that would be more of a cheat, I would think, if yeah. you were to change that. But that's not what we, we read passages from a book. And so who wrote that book? And, and even then, it's like how that is comes to pass, it could be translated some other way where it says... This person does this. Well, really, mean it could mean something else. Sure, yeah. Several redactionary interpolation is what they call right. it in reference to the Bible. Yeah, right. yeah. so well, and, I know you're a literary guy, so <laughs> you know that's why I was throwing in that reference. <laughs> I mean, the X Men live in the shadow of Days of Future Past to this day, even though it's been completely overwritten several times over and just changed shape. So those endings could be anything. They could happen in any way you choose. That so. might not even be six one six. <laughs> that's true yeah could be a different marvel universe future you know but to me i mean i kind of have an agenda here because um after robin diddy you know pretty much pooped on the whole transgender thing in uh, demon knights where he had the <laughs> you know like uh, the shining knight was right. like referred to himself as a she was referred re- was referred to as a she on themiscara yeah. i just thought it was a cop out he was you know, that it was on Themyscira, he's pushing his own agenda, and then I find out that he's a Mormon, and it makes perfect sense now, because this is how he asked Jeff Johns to set it up. He said, as a lifelong Mormon, <laughs> I would just love it if you could end your story exactly like how the Bible ends with the book of Revelations, where it's like, this is the end, anyone that asks this book will be thrown into the pit of hell or whatever, and you turn the page, and it's the book of Mormon. So I want, what I want it to be is the... Your issue should end with the end, and then issue 21 comes out, and it's just like the Book of Mormon, because, you know, I think that... Well, so you're there's going to be a, a, a gold edition? What I think I can do... <laughs> I just want to go door-to-door with these and just say, have you heard of the, the, the good news of, you know, Green Lantern wasn't over with issue 20, you know? This is the New Testament. So you you know? gonna, you're going to go biking in your, in your outfit yes. with your white gloves? Yes. I should do that, actually. So, <laughs> to my knowledge, that is the longest string of falsehoods everybody has ever said about me. In one, in one unbroken span of time. So, yeah. You're a real charmer. Wait, you're not a Mormon? I, I'm not a Mormon. Uh, I don't feel as though I pooped on the transgender cause in any way, shape, or form. I'm trying to remember what else you said in there that was, that was factually inaccurate. But I mean, pretty much everything was. Yeah. Basically, I was just trying to be the internet in, in human yeah. in human form. Yeah. You, you, succeeded, you, were, you were. You were as accurate as the internet. So it was in a that series sense, of, of comments. I would say on you it, achieved yeah. your end. Yeah. yeah. I love Exo Manor. Thanks, I man. love I what you're doing that. with this. Are you having as much fun writing this as I am reading this? I love the beats you have in your storytelling. And when you tell action, it's explosive. And there's something about seeing a barbarian with high-tech armor that just, it fits perfect. And, and you were the first 
book for Valiant out of the gate. Yeah. So I feel like you're kind of leading the charge a little bit. It's exciting. It is the first book Valiant did, but you know, Valiant has been very careful and I think very smart about it. All the books in their lines as they come out are all sort of like genres in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. So this is sort of that sort of sci-fi historical action mashup, which is different than something like Bloodshot or Archer and Armstrong or Harbinger, which is my personal favorite. Like I right. think Harbinger's... Same here. One of the best books on the stage. It's better than X. Bar none. I mean, it's crazy. <laughs> I, don't de- I don't deny that. I mean, it's a completely different book. But um, I've talked to Dysart at length about Harbinger and what he's doing there and, and just how great it is and the risks he's taken as a storyteller. For me, with the action beats, XO is the first monthly series I'd ever written. You know, up until that point, mm-hmm. I'd done primarily just my own creator own stuff. I'd right. never done a monthly book. I'd certainly never done something as action oriented as that. And so for me, I just try to have fun with it. And when I get to moments where he's like punching a grenade in somebody's chest and blowing him apart from the inside <laughs> or whatever, as ridiculous as it sounds, I think that's in keeping with what this character would do because he is a guy who comes from an era of history where all you had was a sword and you ran across the field and you tried to kill as many people as you could yeah. before you died. And there was nothing else to it. I'm no, just going no to kill as many people as I can. Right. No rules to war. Yeah. So when humanity has evolved with technology, we've we've evolved our ethic and how we approach that technology going from swords to guns to cannons to bombs and all these kinds of things, right? We have rules now. We have Geneva Conventions and yeah. all these kinds of things. Like, he didn't get any of that. Like, <laughs> yeah. he went from sword to modern day and got, like, something even more explosive than a nuclear bomb and was like, okay, I'm, an, I'm still that guy from right. 402 AD. And so I think when confronted with a guy like that who has that kind of weapon and you're an enemy facing him, and you throw a grenade at him, he's going to punch it into your chest and blow right. you apart from the inside. Like that's in keeping with what this guy would do. And so I like to think that the action and is to the extent that it gets over the top. Sometimes I still think it's in keeping with how he would act in those circumstances. Right. I agree. It's done much better than like, say, Captain America that was brought back from World War II and just seems perfectly almost acclimated to our modern world, you know. Mm-hmm. And when he fought Ninjak, it was really heightened where Ninjak has Every yeah. skill there is of, you know, the whole history of humanity is just an expert at everything. And this dude just hits him a lot. It was awesome. I wanted to show the difference between the two characters. Like originally Ninjak has to drop on him because he's like, I'm not even going to fight a dude in a suit of armor. Like, <laughs> right. I'm going to take the easy way out because that's what ninjas do. Right. Yeah. And then, uh, which the fans were great about, you know, because it was all billed as like EXO versus Ninjak. And when that issue came out, it was kind of risky. You know, these guys can be really mad. They don't actually fight. But I mean, that's what Ninjak would do. And, and the fans were on board with that. But then in the very next issue, when they face each other again and they're in an airplane and Eric gets the armor on, he just basically disintegrates the airplane around him and Ninjak yeah. has no idea what to do with that. <laughs> it's like, how do I fight that? Like, yeah. this guy is going to disintegrate the plane around me. Like, I've never encountered that before. You know, you know, comics are action based, but try to make the action be indicative of character, just like you would with dialogue, as opposed to just guys hitting each other, which has as been much done as we all to like death that. forever. Yeah. You know? You're writing Road to Unity. What you, is that? Are you? I don't. I'm issue not fifteen with of EXO. Road, okay. Road to Unity. It's it's just an advertisement at this point. It's not. Out. <laughs> yeah. So that's the it of the official thing. You're writing Road to Unity. Are you going to be writing Unity? I probably am not allowed to give any details at all about Unity. I could talk about Road to Unity some <laughs> right. if you want, but as far as Unity itself, I'm probably not allowed to give any details. So. All right. As far as Road to Unity, is it a road? <laughs> where the virgin <laughs> books on their own roads come together into a super highway. <laughs> that is a very crafty way to ask that question. I know the answer to that question, uh, but I will not be giving it to you. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, what can you executed. tell a fan about uh, Road to Unity that's interested in checking it out? 
Well, Eric's going to come back from Planet of Death, which the the last issue of Planet of Death is, I think, comes out June 26th. It's it's the June issue of X-Men Awards, number 14. He's going to come back from Planet of Death, and he comes from this culture, like we were saying earlier, the Visigoths. They were driven out of their ancestral lands in Dacia, which is like modern-day Romania, mm. by the Huns, and they were pushed south across the Danube, and that's how they ended up in the Roman Empire and just sort of wandered in the Roman Empire for decades, sort of looking for land that would be their own, but they never really had one. And so now that he's got this super awesome, you know, suit of armor, he's going to go back to Dacia and have his kingdom like he's supposed to, because he was supposed to be born in, to inherit the crown of the Visigoths. Only problem is that's like modern day, you know, Bucharest. So <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be some, some conflict there. And, uh, you know, again, going back to him not experiencing this evolution of warfare and weaponry and what have you, like, he doesn't understand that he's coming back to planet Earth and there's like a United Nations now and there's NATO and all these kinds of things where... You don't just ride into a country and take it over because you're the strongest guy like you did back in the 5th century. Like now, there are, you know, global ramifications to that kind of behavior. So that's a lot about what road to unity is going to be. Cool. I wonder which side he would be on, XO, on the Israeli-Palestinian thing. Because, no, I mean, like... <laughs> you are always overcomplicating no, this stuff. No, I just wonder what side he would be on because, you know, they want their land back. But, you know... The Israelis <laughs> took the land that they wanted back. Like, what side would he be on? Well, no. Yeah, okay. One thing I will say is one thing I will say that is germane to what he's saying is that the Visigoths were Christians. They were Aryan Christians, which is mm-hmm. a, a bit of a separate sect of Christianity. But they did still consider themselves Christians, and they did often liken themselves to the Jews wandering the desert without a homeland. So that isn't entirely okay. as off base as a lot of his comments <laughs> oh. tend to be. <laughs> <laughs> Out in the dark. I'm just saying that he could probably solve the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with that suit of armor. I say yeah. solve with air quotes. Yeah. Well, I'm pretty sure his solution would be, I will destroy everything and is now my land. He'll blow up the plane. <laughs> just totally dis- disintegrate the plane. Do, do they still own the rights to Turok? Do you know? No. No. Uh, my understanding, and don't anybody quote me on this because I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but my understanding is that Turok, Magnus, and Solar yeah. are gold key characters. Gold key. Huh. And so they were not part of the overall purchase of all the acclaim and, and other valiant characters that were original creations. Okay. So, yeah, I don't think they own those three. But again, I haven't read the court documents or anything. So <laughs> Does anyone know about Rye? Rye, they do they own. Have, right? They do they own. Do own Rye, okay, yeah. all right. I'm not familiar with that character. Rye is, you're, you're Rye Rye is an amazing yeah. character. And like, if you go back and read like a lot of the old Valiant stuff, some of it is it feels dated, you know. Uh-huh. But Rye, I think you read Rye. it now and it still feels ahead of its time. Like a lot of the concepts they were dealing with in Rye which is really, really, you know, mm-hmm. ahead of the curve. I'm very tied into Bloodshot. Right, I will be in Bloodshot Zero. That's really? just my prediction. Okay. All right. <laughs> I mean, why bring Matt Kinn on it if you're not going to incorporate different crazy ideas? The guy's awesome. <laughs> uh, the Homeland Directive. Mm-hmm. I just read this. Okay. Where did this come from? Like, where, where, like how far back did this idea go? <laughs> you know, I, I would say probably around 2004 is when I started working on that. It took a long time to come out, but there were a couple of events that happened. Um, you know, like one thing post 9-11, my wife and I got married uh, about a month after 9-11 and we were actually flying out of Orlando International Airport. I'm from Florida. And, uh, you know, there was uh, National Guardsmen in the airport with their rifles and fatigues yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, I got behind this one woman who at the gate had to show her ID again to board the plane and she got all mad because she'd already shown her ID three times. Why do I have to show my ID again? And it was just this idea that already she didn't want to be inconvenienced and we were so close to the event, you know. Right. And there was another time on the first anniversary of 9-11, again with my wife, I was flying into Philadelphia to go to a, a friend's wedding. 
it was Labor Day weekend, and so it was pretty close to the first anniversary, and it was, you know, flying into a target-rich city. Yeah. There ended up being an event on the plane where the air marshals drew their guns and had to hold the cabin under guard for about 45 minutes. And I was there. I saw the entire thing. I was about five feet away from the entire incident, 45 minutes, you uh-huh. know, guns drawn in the cabins. And my first reaction when this happened was not these guys are being irresponsible. It was like, holy cow, somebody's actually trying to take the plane and I'm glad that these dudes are here because, I mean, they took up positions in front of the pilot's cabin and held it under guard and right. all these kinds of things. We landed, everybody clapped, you know. Next morning I wake up and on the news, all these people have gone to the press and were complaining about the behavior of these air marshals and they're waving their guns around the cabin and all this kind of stuff, which I didn't feel any of that was true. And again, I was as close to it as I am to you guys sitting here. It just made me think that if everything that had happened on the plane and there had been a disruptive passenger, just like there had been, and there had been no air marshals, the next morning those people probably would have been on the news complaining about there were no air marshals, you know? And so it's just this idea that as Americans, we totally want our cake and we want to eat it too. And so how does government reconcile these two things, Mm. you know? And so that's kind of a lot of where the Homeland Directive came from. Like, how do they protect us the way we say we want to be protected, but yet not inconvenience us the way that we're too lazy to be inconvenienced, you know? (laughs) And, and, And what kind of culpability do we have painting government into a corner where right. we force them to to satisfy those two ends. And so a lot of, that's a lot about what the book was about. Okay. So as a writer, whatever doesn't kill you makes a good story. Um, I guess so, yeah. yeah. And I had a question about surrogates because mm-hmm. I had read the book. I loved the book. And then right about the time that I read the book, the movie came out. Like mm-hmm. it was just, just how it happened. Like I had stumbled across the book right in time. And I was really excited because I was a big fan of the book. And so I was just curious your thoughts on the difference in ending between the movie and the book. Like how, like were you consulted? What are your thoughts on it? That's kind of two questions. Uh, let's, let's go with, the, <laughs> let's go with the, the consultation question first. I was a like a consultant on the film, but I never tried to overly insert myself into the process. And sort of the way that I always approached it from the beginning was, Uh, if I have a band and I make a song and you have your own band and you really like my song and you want to do a cover of my song, but I tell you your song has to sound just like my song, then like, why do you want to do it? Right. Right. So that's kind of the way I approached the film. Like I told the story the way I wanted to producers, directors, actors, screenwriters, they're all creative in their own right. So if they read my story and they're inspired to bring their own creativity to it and do it their own way, I don't want to be on their shoulder managing their creativity. Awesome. So I was a consultant from the aspect of if they had a question about the book or or something along these lines, I would answer it for them. But I never tried to insert myself into the process. And when I read their screenplay, I didn't try to say, here's how your screenplay could be like more like my book. I read their screenplay like, here's the story they're trying to tell. And here's what I think about it in regards to that. As far as the ending of the film, obviously, I prefer my ending to the book. That's why I wrote the book that way. Right. (laughs) But... I knew right away that that was never going to be the ending of the movie because that's right. not how Hollywood ends movies. You yeah. know? So <laughs> I, I, I never had any illusions that this is what was going to happen at the end of the film. And a lot of people will say like, well, what do you think about they changed this and they changed that and they changed the other thing? You know, and comic book fans in particular are very big on fidelity to the original source right. material and those kinds of things. But for me, like if you don't want them to change the story, then don't sell it. And, it, and that's on two levels. One is on the level of managing creativity, like I said before. But the other is on, okay, they buy the rights for me and they decide they're going to make a movie and the budget on this movie is going to be $80 million, right? Who am I to tell Disney how they're going to make back $80 million? Like, like if I want to go, if I have ideas about how to make back $80 million, why don't I shell out the $80 million? But you know what? I'm a little light right now. So Disney, why don't you make the movie? And if you think you got to do what you got to do, you go ahead and do it. And who am I to tell you otherwise, Finger. you know? And so that's kind of the way I looked at the whole thing. No, that's an awesome take on it. It's interesting seeing how... 
different things are changed, like with Sin City between the movie and the comic. It's sure. frame per frame. But what I really love more is Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the book is different from the text-based game, is different from the teleplay, is different from the movie, where mm-hmm. it's, each one is a separate experience. So I definitely, I see that, and I, I never looked at it as, this is them wanting to tell the story their way, so that, that's awesome. That was Jeff John's approach to the Green Lantern movie, too. He let them like, just do whatever they wanted. Just... <laughs> <laughs> I actually haven't seen the Green Lantern movie, so. Yeah. It's fine. Don't, yeah, you're don't. right. That's okay. <laughs> you're good. <laughs> you're fine. It's all right. It's just, I don't know. Let's end this on a positive note, I guess, bringing it back to Green Lantern. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, there's not a lot you're going to be able to tell us about what's coming. But um, at the end of your first issue, there was a thing that says, uh, the future image. Green Lantern is heating up. Enjoy an early look at all the thrills to come this year. <laughs> and it's got the, the new island. antagonist relic. Yes. yes. Right. And I see Mogo and yep. Mount Rushmore and um, Bloody Star Sapphire. <laughs> and Kyle <laughs> Jordan got explosion. a pubic hair in his throat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's the big plot line. I, I wasn't supposed to talk about it. Whoever your sources are, man. Wow. Another interpretation. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously Relic is going to be a huge factor in, in the coming months. And, you know, now that Villains Month has been announced, he's going to be one of the key Green Lantern books for the Villains Month uh, series of titles. He really lies at the core concept of a lot of what we want to do from the beginning with the pitch that I turned in and where I wanted to pick up from issue 20. All the events that you see there on that page, you know, that's all going to happen by October. So that's all very near future stuff. You know, so what is it? I mean, the June issue just came out. So we've got, I guess, four more issues and you'll have, you'll know what all that stuff is about. It's kind of hard, honestly, you know, not trying to be evasive, but it is kind of hard to talk about one element of it without revealing what the entire thing is going to be. So. Understandable. Yeah. If we want to talk about the story arc, we're going to need to do it in six months. Exactly. So, yeah. so hold on. Which so I'd be I'm, happy to do, too. So. Awesome. I'm, I'm, shaking, <laughs> I'm shaking my continuity between old DC and New 52. Didn't Mogo die? In, Dude, yeah. you haven't you haven't um no, I haven't you, been you haven't you haven't caught up. I haven't caught up. So Mogo yeah, got back. fixed. He's back. Oh, okay. Yeah. He's back. He got fixed. Yeah. He pulled he himself fixed. back together with his gravitational dying. pull and he pulled all his rocks back it was together. A, it was a whole story arc, man. It didn't feel awesome. forced. Okay, cool. <laughs> it was cool. Okay, no, I was I was Green Lantern barely got rebooted. I mean, it's basically not rebooted. It's but, not rebooted. But yeah. then, like, you have certain story arcs, like, you know, Well, I just, I just found out that, Cyborg Superman's coming back, and I, right. assume, I assumed that didn't happen at all. Yeah. And, and he was a huge element of Green Lantern. There so. was still the death of... Um, Superman, we right? Just, it didn't happen the same way, but the, Superman still died, you know, in the new Fifty Two at some point and came back. So Cyborg must have replaced him then. We'll so. see. But just Cyborg, because we saw Steel happen right. on panel. Uh, Superboy didn't happen. Sad face. Yeah. Um, and Eradicator, I don't fucking know. Well, when we, when we, when we <laughs> specifics on like the reboot happened, but it didn't reboot Green Lantern. Then who killed Kyle Rayner's girlfriend and put her in the refrigerator? If major force doesn't exist anymore, who right. you know? So you guys are all talking about stuff that I know about the refrigerator. Yeah, but other than that, I really don't know about. I mean, I started it, reading comics so late. Like, that's okay. And, uh, it's okay. It, it's just it's, it's stuff that it happened. Right the it's, is. It's, it's, it's bad stuff that probably shouldn't have happened in the comics, but it still happened and it keeps on getting referenced. Yeah. So yeah, there's it, no it's, way it's running not, away from it at this point. It's not good. Aside from Superboy, I don't really feel any loss there. Uh, I don't. I, I, <laughs> I read several titles featuring Eradicator when all that was going on. I can't even tell you who Eradicator is. Is that a character? He was yeah. one of the, he was one of the, he, he was, was a hero or a villain? He, he was one of the Ish. people who replaced, <laughs> he, he replaced Superman After when the, one of the many like who are all these people who the, are appearing now the that Superman's been of the apocalypse and, of and it was like he was Superman <laughs> yeah. with like a yellow visor. That was his And he shot the, like lasers at his hands or something? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, it was dumb. But it was really dumb. Was just like a matrix from Krypton that like made a body and 
Th- maybe I, I that sounds convoluted enough that my brain would have overwritten <laughs> it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. It was weird. When we get back, we're going to cut to the Green Lantern panel that Aaron moderated at Heroes Con with the full roster of all the architects of Green Lantern. And then once that's over, we'll let you know what we think so far about uh, all the work they've done. This is an old release by Grammar Club. It's a fun style parody of Nine Inch Nails. It's called A Team by Myself.
I've always liked Nori. I have this thing for like animals in space, you know? Like I'm not a furry, but if you put an animal in space, you know, whether it's Rocket Raccoon or Nord or Chip, Badge, Cosmo, you know, there's just something. What? Yes. Dexter, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, there's just yeah, and and Jeff Johns like lost all integrity with me when his he does Dexter, but he says North North's too silly. Oh, that's awesome. You got a, he, this guy's got a uh, a Dexter um, Toulouse will, Latrec I would cat buy that. print. It's I would awesome. buy that. But it's like, why would you have a space cat and you say you can't have the space dog? Oh, I I I love Salak. I, I like seeing him in the spotlight, and uh, the Guardians and all their machinations have really overshadowed. Right. You know, well, you always have to have character. So you always have to have one Green Lantern that everyone dumps on, and it, and, yeah. and 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 that's why he's cool. That's why I think thank he's God it's character. not John Stewart anymore. You know, like <laughs> right. John Stewart. Like I loved him in the cartoon, but in the comic, it's like, oh, I blew up a planet. I blew up another planet. I killed another Green Lantern. It's like, and we're supposed but, to root for you? Like, come <laughs> on, man. Like seriously. Well, let's see a show of hands. How many people like consider themselves to be John Stewart fans? Wait, because because you love the cartoon. How many people wouldn't give a shit if he was dead? Racist. That's more. Are, are You're these, all racist. Wait, are these people are these people from the Republican convention that just came in here? <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I like honestly, I I agree that if he died at this point, I wouldn't really care because I don't enjoy his appearances. But now, I, that's I, their I personally, that's I their personally challenge. think it's just even even Jeff Johns didn't really all the time. Sometimes it was great. Didn't really know how to write him. Uh, well, he didn't put much screen time on it. Yeah, no one's really invested the time needed to make him. Other than the character. cartoon show, the cartoon and, show was brilliant. Yeah. How many of you guys are Guy Gardner fans? Not right. nearly enough. All right. Not nearly yeah. enough, but we'll take it. We'll take I it. I love Guy Gardner. You know, like, um, you know, people say what they will about Guy Gardner and say, like, he's an a-hole. And I say, absolutely he's an a-hole. But here's the two things, the two requirements of Green Lantern. You know, totally honest, totally without fear. Now, what, what a-hole do you know that isn't brutally honest <laughs> and has no, no fear, right? I mean, come on. He's the perfect Green Lantern. This guy is uh, Guy Gardner's number one fan, by the way. I love that guy. Who's, who's a Kyle fan? All right, and now keep that, your, is that more than Guy? Oh. About the same, maybe one or two more. Yeah, Man, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Space Jesus is cool. <laughs> I love Space Jesus. You like those two pages uh, at the end of Green Lantern Twenty where he's just like Space Jesus, just healing the sick and whatnot. <laughs> that was that kind of fit the character. That would be cool. Gomelius um, is a, like a, a blue construct instead of orange construct. Right. <laughs> that would be a great future for him. And he's one of his apostles. Yes. <laughs> Here comes the talent. I better get but the hell out of here. These are the guys, the new team. These are the guys that you guys might have questions for because, I mean, some for some reason, you guys read Green Lantern 20 and didn't decide that it was the end. Like, you were told it was the end. DC told you specifically the end, period. But yet you still got issue 21 from your comic shop, and you're like, wow, I didn't know this was coming. And you, you got it, and you liked it enough to come to this panel to hear what these guys have to say. This is Rob V. Diddy. This is uh, Charles Soule, not Soleil, Soul. I'm doing the Red Lanterns. Guy Gardner. He's doing Guy Gardner semicolon Red Lanterns. Whoa, um, whoa, whoa. I thought I was writing Red Lanterns. <laughs> no. Sorry. Surprise. <laughs> Big announcement. Van Jensen is doing uh, Green Lantern Corps. And uh, finally, Justin Jordan is doing Space Jesus with Kyle Rayner and New Guardians. It's true. <laughs> Space Jesus. And uh, how I'd like to start it off is just let these guys each say a little something like, kind of give your, your pitch for what you're doing, what the next few months is, why people should stay on the books since, you know, it was the end. And uh, then we'll ask for questions. Here's yeah. the thing. Jeff Johns, you know, he loved Green Lantern. His love rubbed off on us. So we're Green Lantern fans more than we're Jeff Johns fans. And Green Lantern's continuing. So if Jeff Johns did his job, we're all going to keep reading Green Lantern because he made us that lifelong Green Lantern fans, you know, unless these guys thoroughly screw it up. 
uh, screwing it up is certainly not the goal. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, my my sort of vision of how knowing what was going to be in place by the time uh, Jeff's run, you know, came to a conclusion, you know, with the the core sort of being decimated by a lot of the events that have taken place, you know. Rise of the Third Army, Wrath of the First Lantern, things like that. With the infrastructure gone and the old Guardians gone, I guess I'm saying some spoilers, but hopefully everybody's already read number 20 and I'm not ruining anything for anybody. But Yeah, um, there will be spoilers for issue 20. They don't really have the infrastructure in the core, and so Hal is going to be put in a position where he takes on a leadership role, which is not something that's really what he's all about. I mean, yes, he's a very heroic guy, and he does a lot of things, he takes a lot of risks, but uh, he's a guy who's a fighter pilot. You know, he's not a platoon sergeant or whatever. He, he's comfortable with taking risks and doing these things because it's always just him who's going to pay the price, and, and that's fine with him. He's, he's, he's at peace with that. But now that he's more of a leadership role, his decisions are going to affect others, and so how is that conflict going to shape him as a hero and as a leader and those kinds of things? And so what we'll be seeing in the main Green Lantern title, and each of these guys can talk about their own titles uh, more specifically, but in the main Green Lantern title, we're going to see Hal facing some challenges, not just in terms of him taking on a leadership role, but also in terms of villains that he's going to face. We're going to be bringing in new villains that are going to be presenting challenges to him that he has not faced before. It's going to be at, at the worst possible moment, you know, with the core, like I say, they're decimated. Their credibility is sort of destroyed because they're seen as this force, which isn't necessarily accurate because they were fighting against a lot of the, the Guardians' machinations, but they're seen as representing the Guardians who, were, who did all these things to the universe. And so now they're sort of feared and even reviled in some corners. So he has already that to deal with, and he's going to be confronted with new challenges through villains like Relic. Um, that are going to represent specific things that are going to make it really hard for him. You know, the best leader in the best circumstances would have a hard time dealing with some of these issues, and so it's going to be really tough for him to deal with as well. So Red Lanterns, right? Red Lanterns is kind of a weird concept. You know, it's, it's, it's these, these ragey, rage, rage guys who rage. Uh, with and, rage? Yeah, they're pretty angry. They're pretty upset. And, and so that's, that's what the book is, and that's what it's been. And so what I decided I wanted to do with it, that thankfully DC decided they would let me do with it, was to bring on kind of an entry point to the series, uh, a character that a lot of people already know, that, that people kind of think would maybe make sense as a Red Lantern, who is, of course, Guy Gardner, the red-headed, ragey Green Lantern. So the way that the story plays out, and this is some of the stuff that happens in, in my first issue, 21, which sits in just a few weeks, because of some of the things Rob was saying, the Green Lanterns have been decimated, they're reeling from all these blows they've, they've taken, and they want to know, at least as much as they can, what's coming, right? So they don't, they don't want to be blindsided anymore. So what they do is Hal basically asks Guy to go undercover in the Reds. Guy is very resistant to that, because who would want to go live on Ismalt or do all those terrible things? But he eventually sort of realizes there's a need to do it, so he goes, and then things go terribly wrong, as, as you would probably hope they would go wrong, right? If everything went swimmingly, it would be a very interesting book. So it all goes to shit, and then Guy Gardner has to kind of survive being in the Reds, and that's, that's the book. The tone is, is sort of like uh, Sons of Anarchy or a show like that. I've said that in a few interviews, but I'll, I'll stand by it. Um, or The Shield, maybe. You know, the, these are bad guys trying to do good things by doing bad things. And uh, that's basically the, uh, the Red Lanterns I'm trying to write. Hope you guys check it out. Green Lantern core. The big focus there is this is finally John Stewart kind of getting his his time to shine, and it's been really exciting to get to you know to be the writer to take him on as a character and really examine where he is, but also especially where he's going. I think his character it's been focused a lot on kind of these awful things that have happened in his past and really dwelling on that. And so we're looking at his future and and kind of what he wants and what he sees is where the core stands and where it should go, and it fits into what Rob is building 
building with the core being sort of thrown into upheaval and the guardians are gone and who's really running the show what's the leadership structure you know if the if you think of the green lantern core as sort of the the police of the universe what happens when they have to govern people who don't want to be governed by them and it's going to be um, you know a lot of huge challenges a lot of new old villains in a way and just a lot of things to challenge the core in ways that they they haven't really had to struggle with you know uh, rob actually told this is perfect time to interject rob actually told me something very interesting about your background this morning which is that you had you spent a lot of time sort of on the police beat um and and so i felt like that was fascinating because it gives you kind of an insight into sort of police procedure and things that the average person or writer might not have and that could be something cool you could bring to the core hypothetically (laughs) thank you yeah, I spent a few years as a, a crime reporter at a newspaper, so the best way to explain it is, like, first thing I did in the morning was go into the paper, call the coroner, ask who got murdered overnight. The second thing I did was turn on the police scanner and wait for the next person to get killed. So it was a lot of, like, racing around town, going to crime scenes, being in the, the wrong part of town at the wrong time of night. Talking to meth heads. Plenty of those. This was Arkansas. Um, And a lot of it was very inner city. And so you would see mostly white police force dealing with this inner city situation where you could tell that they roll in and the people who live there don't want the cops to be there. And that's a, a super tough dynamic because the cops are trying to do good. But it's just, it's really tough to manage that. So that's, I guess, the dynamic that, that I really want to explore. I think that's our thing, like, our human reaction. Like, most of us are like, oh, man, the cops. On the other hand, if somebody's busting down your door or going to go at your head with an axe, as soon as the shop, cops show up, you're going to be a happy camper. So, you know. Yeah, I think that if you think about, like, uh, from a civilian's perspective, you don't really care if the gun is red or blue or orange or whatever. Like, they're dudes with guns, you know. And so we've seen them go against each other as core against core, and we know what those differences are. But to the people living in the infinite universe or whatever, I mean, they're all kind of the same to them. How is uh, Green Lantern and Green Lantern Corps, how closely connected are they going to be since they're both seem to be set on Oa and you're, at least your name's on the cover of his book, so. Um, the co- my name is on the cover of the book, yes. yeah. But, uh, I mean, I'm just co-plotting it with Van. Van's doing most of the heavy lifting. Um, he comes up with most of the concepts and things like that, and so he does all the scripting and all those kinds of things. There will be linkage in the sense that I think there's linkage between the two books now, that they both deal with the core, and there will be characters that are going on between them, but each of the storylines will stand on their own and, and work independently. And it's the kind of thing where if you read both books, you'll see the common threads, and if you don't, you'll just be reading the one that you read, which, of course, will be actual Green Lantern and not Green Lantern Core, because that's, no, I'm just kidding. But, um. New Guardians finally has a reason to be called New Guardians. What it is essentially about is that the Templar Guardians have gotten out of the temple, and they realized that their brothers and sisters righteously fucked up, and they don't want to make those same mistakes, but they also think they don't know enough about the universe and how things work to avoid those mistakes on their own. So they basically ask Kyle to show them around the universe and so they can kind of learn on it. And Kyle has, does not want to do it. Kyle was really hurt by what happened with Gamfet, who used to be his best friend, who you know blasted a hole in his chest. But Hal Jordan makes a pretty compelling case on why he's the guy that should be watching these guys. Because basically everybody thinks these Guardians are going to go bad too. And they get out in the universe and find that the actions of the old Guardians have really ruined the reputation of the Guardians across the universe. And they have to deal with that as well. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> also, I'm qualified to write it because I've got the whole Space Jesus look going on. That's, that's basically what got me the job. All right, so you guys want uh, to ask some questions? that these guys may or may not answer. 
Hey, do you guys have any plans to use Simon Baz at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, definitely. We definitely have plans for him, and not in the immediate future. I mean, it, there's a huge number of lanterns and everything. I mean, there's a whole bunch of stuff that we want to get to. It's just, you know, you don't want to do it all at once. Kind of a question that's been bugging me for a year is, why don't they just ditch Owen and live on Mogo? I mean, it looks like that would be the safest place in the world, but... <laughs> That's a keep, great, I mean, yeah, keep that's a great reading. Idea. Somebody, yeah. somebody, somebody, somebody yeah. should write that down. Yeah. 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 Is Kyle going to stay as the White Lantern, or he has all those other spectrums in, in one ring, or is he just, was that just leading up to him transforming into the White Lantern? He is the White Lantern, and he can okay. use any power of any of the rings, except possibly black. We'll leave that a little bit uh, ambiguous, uh, but yes, he's got all those powers, and you will see him using all of those. He's got a really versatile weapon in the, in the form of the White Ring. He does in my mind, tend to default to green a lot because he started as a Green Lantern. So that's kind of, you know, when you get in the habit of something. He's got a handle on using all those powers, but one of the things he has to do is think about what power he has at his disposal would be best for the situation rather than just green. I was curious, is Green Lantern going to be joining the Justice League anytime soon or because he left there and he hasn't, or any Green Lantern joined yeah, the Justice Baz League? Baz is supposed to be the, the opposite counterpoint to Hal Jordan Green Lantern, right. according to Jeff Johns. Yeah. That's not really my department, you know? That's not really a question for me to answer, you know, because I, I don't, I'm not involved with that book. Okay, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for nothing. <laughs> Have you guys had any trouble with last-minute editorial changes to your books that's been rumored online everywhere? <laughs> and all our eyes go to Matt Idelson in the back of the room, yeah. the editor of the books. <laughs> <laughs> My experience has been wonderful. You know, I'm writing Swamp Thing for DC as well. It just hasn't been that way. It's been, it's been really great. I mean, I think the, the idea is with, with this group of writers to try and see what we can do as new voices. The Green Lantern universe has been run by Jeff Johns. I mean, maybe that's overstating it slightly, but he's been certainly a significant guiding voice for a really long time. And so now it's, you know, they seem to have confidence in us. I mean, we'll, we'll destroy that confidence very quickly. Sure, but, yeah. but right now... It's perhaps completely misguided. But yes. Yeah. To echo Charles's thing, you know, I mean, my experience has been good. I've, I've written eight issues of Demon Knights and now I guess six issues of Green Lantern and I've worked with uh, a few different editors there and everything's been fine so I'm not discounting what anybody else says I don't know about those things but from my personal experience everything has been good and one thing I will say is that whether you guys end up liking it or not who knows you know we're going to execute the story the best way that we can I feel comfortable saying that the story that we are coming out of the gate with that all the things that will happen by the time we get to the end of October is not what I define as a safe story you know it, it, they are allowing us to take some pretty big risks with something that is one of their marquee properties. And so uh, to that extent, I feel like we've been given some good range to do some things. And so, you know. Yeah, that's true, actually. When you, yeah. if, if you had like a bullet point list of everything that's going to happen in these books over the next, whatever, four or five months, you'd be very surprised. Uh, one thing is like Bleeds. Uh, I was wondering maybe what, what your kind of plans maybe for her. I think she's really important because she's, you know, she's the only female in, in the Red Lanterns that we've really seen. And it's a big personal focus of mine to make realistic female characters to the extent I can, even though she has like crazy bone wings and all the rest. But I want to make her, you know, not just one note, as many notes as I can and make her interesting, just like all the rest of them. I mean, even, even Jellyfish Ratchet Guy, I want to make him cool too. He's a little harder challenge, but I'm, uh, you know, we'll, we'll make it work. A lot of people, their first exposure to you as writers will be your Lantern book. So say someone, instead of all this cautiously optimistic, like, maybe you'll like our Lantern books, maybe you won't. What if they really like it? And they might want to check out something else you've written. <laughs> what, what would you suggest they should check out and, and why? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, Exo Man of War is, is a sci-fi story as well. Um, I wrote a, if you, you know, I wrote a book called The Surrogates, which is sci-fi. It's not, you know, space alien stuff the way Exo Man of War is, but it still deals with sci-fi. So, I mean, I would like to think that any one of my books would be something that you would enjoy. You know, I think the thing, the through line between all the books that I have written or, or I'm writing now, and there's there's a there's a number of them, uh, is that I try to just put in as many. I try to make them dense with ideas, and and the ideas that I put into say Swamp Thing are very different than the ideas that I put into say Red Lanterns, but there's still, you know, there's a lot in every issue. There's a lot to sort of get your, your head around. So, you know, Swamp Thing is a fun read, I think. And I also had a book just come out called Strange Attractors, uh, which is a, a creator-owned OGN about two mathematicians who turn New York City into an engine using complexity theory. So that's a pretty fun read, too. It's exciting. <laughs> Thrills and chills. Um, the books that I'm most known for is the uh, Pinocchio Vampire Slayer series, which, you know, you get what that's all about. Um, <laughs> I guess the thing I'll say about those books is they're very silly and kind of ridiculous, but um, the two things that, that I try to do with those that I'm bringing to Green Lantern Corps is the Pinocchio premise is pretty silly, but it there's a just like a challenge to take this thing that's a little ridiculous and make like a real true character-driven story out of it. And then also to tease out, it's all based on the original Pinocchio folktale, which is a, a pretty fascinating story. I, it's free online, go read it. But to take like these weird elements of it and just explore the logic. And I think for me, so much of writing is taking things, maybe like the continuity of Green Lantern and all these weird little bits of history and just teasing out the logic because it's like, okay, well, and this is the same thing that you all do as fans. It's like, you think, okay, this means this. Well, then what about this? And how does this relate to it? And you like, you chase those down and all of a sudden it leads you to a pretty interesting place where you're conceptualizing like the framework of, of how these things work and then bringing it back to how does it impact characters? Luther Strode, because I make more money if you guys buy that one. Um, no, you know, that's actually a surprisingly difficult question because as I mentioned, all my books are really different. Um, I would actually think Superboy is probably more in the wheelhouse of New Guardians, but even then, they're fairly radically different books. Luther Strode is some of my best work. It's incredibly violent and, you know, riddled with swear words, so definitely not appropriate for children. <laughs> but I do think it represents probably the best demonstration of what I can do. So, yeah, probably Luther Strode. All right, this question is more for your fanboy sides and your writer sides to fight against each other. For you, personally, as a writer, what's the definitive Green Lantern? Who's your, not necessarily favorite, but like, when you say Green Lantern, who do you think of and why? Jon Stewart. <laughs> no, seriously. I, I, I gave am. him a significant sum of money. Yeah. No, seriously, um, when I first saw Green Lantern, like, there was the Jon Stewart books uh, back in, I want to say the late 80s. So that is one of those things that just kind of be cemented, you know, in my mind that that's the default Green Lantern in my head when I think about a Green Lantern. And honestly, given how cool he was on, like, Justice League and Justice League Unlimited, I suspect there's probably a lot of people who are thinking of Jon Stewart when they think of who the Green Lantern is. So yeah, That was about the same for me because I, I started reading at the same time period, and he's just a fascinating character. I mean, I don't look at him as, like, the definitive Green Lantern because that's, you know, everyone's subjective with that. And, I mean, there are so many, like, ev everyone represents kind of the same thing in different variations of it, but he's just a, a really complex, very introspective Green Lantern, I guess, a very, very intellectual, and I, I think that's kind of a cool aspect of, of thinking through problems rather than just like 
diving in immediately and punching everything you know as yeah. hard as he can. I think the which is your Green Lantern question is is a lot like you know who's your doctor? For me, it's it's Tom you know, Baker. who I came to first. Yeah, it's Tom Baker for me as in the Doctor Who. But it's you know it was it was it's Hal Jordan just because he was the first one that I kind of encountered and like I remember the like the Mego superhero figure that I saw as part of the collection whatever. So Hal Jordan, the others are great too. But I didn't start reading comics till I was like 27. So everything I knew about comics is what most people know just your general pop culture knowledge. And so for me, it's Hal Jordan because I think he was probably the most visible. You know, mm-hmm. he's just the first one that I encountered. And so that's who I think of. You know? Guy Gardner is the greatest number one Green Lantern ever. And I will arm wrestle all of you after this to prove it. <laughs> I swear to you, as a kid, I could not get into Guy Gardner because of his haircut. Like, no joke. Like, like, that alone, I'm like, well, I'm not reading that crap. Like, as, as a kid, I had his haircut. Like, my mom... Had? Thought, yeah, she... <laughs> <laughs> Come on down. Yeah. And look, he'll never order any of my books again. <laughs> so, not all of the Green Lantern books are out yet. Larflees and Red Lanterns have yet to come out, but we can talk about Green Lantern, Green Lantern Corps, and New Guardians. When Green Lantern came out, you know, I, I there was a lot of leeway that I gave Rob because it was it was the first of you know the tip of the iceberg for everything that was to come, and you know there was a lot of sorting that was happening. Like just and a lot following of up, that issue twenty is just ridiculous. Yeah, you know? kind of an impossible feat, but it wasn't a bad issue. Uh, it just wasn't um, there wasn't a lot of hooks there exactly. But having read New Guardians and Core, the bigger picture is starting to shape itself, and uh, I'm actually really excited. You know, in that panel they mentioned that. Anybody could read, you know, whichever title they wanted to, and they could just read that one book and it would be fine. But if you read them all, you'd sort of get a feel for the, the whole big picture. And reading them all so far, I'm really getting a feel for that big picture. And they're all connecting together in ways that the Green Lantern books haven't in a long time. Right. When they connected last with uh, that third army, it seemed kind of forced and it seemed kind of like, and you know, whatever, who cares? This it's neat. It's the, they're all in it together, rebuilding the, the perception of Green Lanterns, the perception of the core, their role in the universe, and this relic character from another universe. But I'm really digging John Stewart in that, whom uh, did not shine during the nine years of Jeff Johns. John no, Stewart, he really didn't. He had a few moments, but uh, he didn't really have the spotlight much yeah. at all, <laughs> you know? And with that, I mean, uh, Van Jensen just deftly, like, I love these, these subtle things. Like, Jeff Johns did that sometimes where, you know, he said that John Stewart was uh, a Marine and an architect because he paid for his architecture school with the GI Bill. You know, cool. All right. Moving on. Right. But it, they never really moved on. John Stewart just kept killing Green Lanterns, killing Mogo, and regretting his life and wanting to die. And how do you really, <laughs> how do you really root for... You know, the black sheep, no pun. Um, but how do you really, how do you really champion someone that's so down on themselves? You know, like, how do you really get behind that? You know, like, it's easy to get behind Guy Gardner because he's so arrogant. You know, you're right. like, yeah, Guy, <laughs> you're right. But um, it's so deft, it's so subtle. He made Salik the regretful doom and gloom, the most sullen GL on Oa. Good so fit. now, so now John is no longer that character because Salik has taken that role. You know, <laughs> like, it's just so brilliant. So I, I would like to see John help. Salek with that a little bit. Right. But um, <laughs> I just, I want to see Jon Stewart get into that role. And eventually I see that Jon Stewart's going to get into the role of leading the core and how we'll go back to Earth. Yeah. I mean, that's just me, you know, reading the tea leaves. But it <laughs> seems like a pretty good guess and, and one that I, I welcome because I want Jon Stewart to be a good character. When people who've only seen the Justice League cartoon show 
are all like, what the fuck? Why no John Stewart? And the answer is because he's not a very good character. And then they say, yes, he is. And be like, well, <laughs> like, what are you racist? <laughs> I mean, the fact is, is he needs to be a good character. He can be a good character and it's high time it happened. I think it's happening right now. Right. And what's also exciting to me is that uh, ever since the new 52 happened, Green Lantern lost its footing. It stumbled right there. And maybe it was because the, it was also at the same time, not just the new 52, but also the Green Lantern film which mandated things that needed to happen like, oh, well, Sinestro needs to be a Green Lantern for a while. That was kind of dumb. But none of the titles really regained the energy that they had. And just as they were starting to, then Jeff Johns left the book. Now, for the first time in a really long time, I feel the old energy from Green Lanterns. It's actually happening again. It's working. And I'm really, really excited to be reading Green Lantern. Before, I was kind of in a holding pattern. It was easy for me to read it because I could read it for free at your shop and not have to buy it. <laughs> right. But would it, you have bought it? it I would not to. have bought it. Right. I would absolutely have dropped it. And, and it wasn't bad. It just kind of was just... It got bland. Water, especially the Third Army stuff. But yeah, Third Army it, Blue. Just like the pacing of that was all off. The Wrath of First Lantern was pretty cool, and issue twenty was amazing. I loved issue twenty. Yeah. But now uh, each title is it's on its own footing. It has its own Green Lantern protagonist, and and they're going somewhere together. Like they let slip in this panel. If you listen, uh, Charles Soule actually is like when someone asks how connected your book's going to be, and he goes. Well, I mean, there's the crossover, and then everyone looked at him, like, because I was on the panel sitting up there, and he didn't say anything. There's a crossover that's coming October called Lights Out. And, um, awesome. Yeah, it's just... I, I, I didn't know what to make of that moment at yeah, all. It was kind of cool. I was like, uh... But, you know, I didn't press it, because I don't want to be, you know, a dick. But um, everything's building towards this crescendo in October, which... It's kind of cool. I mean, everything was uh, in ruins after Jeff Johns left with the storyline, not him creatively, but it, he left everything in ruins and they're all going on their own path of redeeming the core and uh, they're all going to crash together in October. That's awesome. Let's, let's see it happening. Kyle was in good form. Kyle was, was yes. fun. New Guardians, um, Justin Jordan has a voice for like a young character that would rather... Um, not be doing the role he's in but we'll do it anyway and we'll be somewhat successful while complaining and, about it and big surprise of like you know everybody knows that relic is the the villain of the green lantern thing he he the, his first appearance is in this book right i didn't see that coming new, new guardians has always been very auxiliary you know right and and um well the those new guardians which i loved how justin jordan said like it's finally aptly named because there are <laughs> new guardians in it so having them going around the galaxy and bumping into the threat first as the outliers or whatever makes perfect sense. Because yeah. Hal's back on Oa, and so is John Stewart and whatnot. And so the Hal thing was good. I mean, Venditti absolutely did not embarrass himself. He set some stuff up, and um, I've liked each one kind of better than the last. I'm very nervous about Red Lanterns because that's my guy, but um, I love Charles Soule. I even read his, um, he's taking over Thunderbolts with the next issue. Oh man, really? And it was so good. It's like um, Punisher's, you know, dating Elektra. I mean, that's not a spoiler. Everyone. Dating is a strong word. But okay, he's having sex with her. Right. Punisher's having respectful uh, assassin sex with Elektra. Yes, it's consensual. Yeah, it's, but it's the kind of thing, it's like fighting and fucking and so on. In this, Elektra lied to him about her brother being dead. Mm -hmm. And um, Punisher hears what she says and sees that he's not dead and goes and kills him right and so in punisher's internal you know monologue is a war journal if you will you know in the right. captions he's talking about how he's done with electra that she lied to him that she's part of the problem she's this she's that and that you know he's going to tell her it's over and 
Punisher's not out of character because he's saying all these things to his war journal, but his actions are not what he's saying. <laughs> and that's cool. You know, he goes to Electra and then it's on again. You know, he does not break things off with Electra even after she lied to him and all this stuff happened, you know, and, and he kills her brother. Like, I guess that's a spoiler, but whatever. It's it not going to happen. It's, this isn't about Thunderbolts. It's about Charles Soule. I'm making a point that when you have, uh, let's say, an editorial mandate or, or just something saying like, all right, Punisher's going to date Electra because Wonder Woman is dating Superman. That's not and, what happened. And some people are like, that's out of character for Punisher. Why would he do that? Blah, blah, blah. She's she's a contract killer. She's when you, this, she's when that. When you say dating, it makes it sound more wrong than it is. If, <laughs> you're right. reading the, if you read the book, it doesn't feel weird. <laughs> but to have him thinking one thing in the narrative device of the War Journal, which is something that dates back to Punisher to the beginning. Right. And he's saying one thing to you as the reader that... He feels this way. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And then you see him not do what he is saying. It's like, ah, this is interesting, you know? (laughs) And I I mentioned that a little aside because Charles Soult was announced in October is going to launch a book called Superman Wonder Woman. Ongoing. Yes. Wow. So their relationship survives Trinity War. Interesting. It's going to have an ongoing book. We'll see if the readership will survive Trinity War. The way DiDio put it is that um, they didn't want to shoehorn the Wonder Woman Superman relationship into Wonder Woman because you know they love what Azarello is doing with it, so they're giving it its own book. So hmm. okay, cool. Let's see. I mean, Charles Soule's good. He seems to be really great with relationships, and let's see him kick some ass. Oh. But yeah, Guy Guy Gardner, he better do Guy justice. He better do that well. I think Charles Soule's a, a guy to watch out for. Totally. Like his oh, Swamp Thing is incredible. So I agree. Um, me, Guy Gardner as a Red Lantern. Like I already, I hope it's really good because I already have in my mind. You know, I've been working out a lot. I've been losing weight, building muscle. <laughs> I want to cosplay as Red Lantern Guy Gardner with like the blood around my mouth and I want to get a chainsaw and spray paint it red as a construct and just walk around Megacon with a red spray painted chainsaw as Guy Gardner, Red Lantern. We'll That's see. what I want. Mm, I hope they, uh, security guys are okay with that. But... Well, you, if you take the little teeth yeah. out. So if Red Lantern sucks, I won't do that because that would be embarrassing. <laughs> but if it kicks ass, I'm going to do that for Megacon. Awesome. I'll hold you to it, dude. <laughs> you know, we played this song before and it's a classic, but it's uh, highly appropriate with all this Green Lantern going on right now. We're going to play Ring Capacity by Kirby Crackle. <laughs> Space 
Okay, now this episode's already gotten pretty long, but uh, we wouldn't be doing anybody any justice if we didn't talk about awesome books that you need to read. So we'll try to do this quick. And first, before we do that, we're going to close out with that. It's a nice little way to end things. Uh, we're going to cut to some clips from our image panel. Uh, hey, uh, I'm Joe Harris. I write a book called Great Pacific. Um, it's a sci-fi adventure series. Uh, image Comics puts out monthly with a little bit of an environmental theme. I'm Trad. I draw Luther Strode. I'll let Justin explain it. Justin, go. Well, The Strange Talent of Luther Strode is about a nerdy kid who sends away for a Charles Atlas-style bodybuilding course, gets it, does it, develops superhuman powers, and then finds himself the target of a murder called as old as mankind. So we totally ripped off the plot of About a Boy. Uh, I'm Nate. I draw Nowhere Men, written by Eric Stevenson, our boss. It's a science fiction book. Uh, it's hard to explain what the premise of the book is. <laughs> My name is Corey Walker. I co-created Invincible with superstar writer Robert Kirkman. Hey there, uh, I'm Todd Nockis. Like, I'm drawing Invincible Universe, which was Guarding the Globe. It's a spinoff from the Invincible series. And Invincible Universe, we have all the overflow stories that... Uh, Outside of what Robert and Ryan are doing in Invincible, we're, we're handling everybody else. So Guardian, the Guardians of the Globe, Wolfman, Tech Jacket occasionally, and all the other, you know, C, D string characters. The, the characters you haven't gotten to know much about, we're going to help you get to know more about those characters. Um, Joe Eisman, I draw Morning Glories, uh, written by Nick Spencer. We pride ourselves on the fact that it's the least confusing comic out there. <laughs> I'm Ming Doyle, and I draw a comic called Mara written by Brian Wood of uh, Northlanders' DMZ and Demo fame. And we do a comic that is about literal girl power when the world's most famous volleyball player becomes the first person to ever develop superpowers and goes from being the golden idolized child of every nation to being the blackest sheep that everyone fears and despises. And I like to call it a coming of rage story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm going to kind of gush a little bit, but Cory Walker, he was like, a guy gave me a copy of Invincible, I guess, when I was in like uh, senior year of high school or freshman year of college, and that was when I started reading Image Comics, I had never read them beforehand. So thank you for getting me into Image Comics. And it was funny, I love Ryan Otley's work, but when it first switched from Cory Walker to Ryan Otley, I was like really upset about it. And I was like, who is this other guy? Um, so, yeah. No, I, I would I would love to do um, fan art for Invincible. <laughs> now, that's where I broke in was at Rob Liefeld's studio oh, wow. in the first two years of Image. Like, I was one of those guys that got in that way. So um, I was excited to work for Rob Liefeld. Working at Extreme Studios was a lot of fun, and I was glad I got that opportunity to break in at the beginning of Image. So I got to come in right when the roller coaster was right up here. And it's like, where are all those royalty checks I was hearing about? Hey, what's going on? Where's all the money? <laughs> I think Image was founded when I was 13, 14, somewhere around that range. So Youngblood was the coolest fucking thing in the history of the world. Um, and I actually still think there are parts of Youngblood that are kind of underrated. Like the idea of like superheroes as like media superstars and that their image was being managed and all that kind of stuff. That's genuinely clever writing. Like even now we kind of haven't done as much as that as they should, although they are touching on it in Mara. So I'm writing Superboy right now, and I just flat out can't have Superboy just walk up to Lex Luthor and rip his head off, which is the fairly logical reaction. I can absolutely do that whenever I time I want in Luther Strode, so.
so you know. Is this current six issue miniseries the last we're ever going to see of Luther Strode, or is that something that you guys are keen to continue working on? It is not the last of um, of Luther Strode. We have one more series coming afterwards that we're going to get started working on it uh, later this year and then release it in 2014 and that will be the last you see of Luther Strode. That's not saying that he's going to live or die. We're just done with it after that. It, we, we had a, an idea. I mean, just from the get-go, we had a, an arc that we wanted to take the character on and um, we feel that everything that you know we wanted to be said about the character and his growth will, will be finished by the end of our next series, which will be the legacy of Luther Strode. Well, I'm a big believer in telling the amount of story you have and not trying to extend it past that. And it's it's one of those things, just because the book sells doesn't mean we should try to push it past its natural lifespan. I would rather have readers have a nice chunk of story than have a decent chunk of story and then like five trades of misery. I think that the one main pro to working for like DC or Marvel or something is just that it's an easier sell when like your dentist asks you what you do. You're like, oh, I draw comics. They're like, which one? And you don't have to, you know, explain volleyball superhero. You can just be like, yeah, you know, the Fantastic Four, or like Spider-Man. They're like, oh, that is, that's a thing that I've heard of. So. so we don't have any tough Morning Glory questions or any comparisons of Morning Glory to Lost or uh, accusations of us ripping something off, like Tower Prep or whatever. I really like clothes and fashion, so can you talk to me about what it was like designing the school uniforms? Like, did you take any inspiration from, like, Sailor Fukus and Japanese design? or is it more like a straight-up prep thing uh, or like the craft or well I mean uh, it was uh, me and Rodine a cover artist we both collaborated on those and yeah there's some there's definite uh, Japanese influences I'm a big manga reader battle royale and we'll probably I think that's another one we actually got accused of ripping off um, <laughs> uh, it feels weird to me to like watch shows or Google stuff or you know f specifically for fashion I know we actually early on we, we were like really into Gossip Girl when we started and uh, I always kind of felt embarrassed to admit that to people just because like you know but the, whoever was their costumer on that show was a genius they were like they like they really had like some really cool outfits I mean I don't know it's weird for me to admit that but yeah. <laughs> and like in like the, like lately uh, the show the show pretty little wires has actually been a pretty big influence on uh, yeah <laughs> the look of the show so yeah, I just you know now now I've given everybody blackmail material. Joe watches Pretty Little Liars. <laughs> I like both those shows and Teen Wolf, so you've got nothing to be ashamed of. <laughs> I've found that image fans, uh, a lot of them are college age. I mean, I'm by a college and boom, you know. If, it, it's harder for me to sell to lifelong um, Marvel or DC fans image books than it is to a college age person. But I've also found that true fans, by and large, are um, heavy pot smokers. But, you know, like anytime someone smells like weed and comes in the store, I know I can sell them too. So. You've met John Lehman, right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, it was kind of interesting that I was looking at a message board recently and people were talking about image and it is astonishing how many fans at least of this message board subset which is not a good representative sample <laughs> nevertheless had no idea what image does now like there's at least a significant number of people who still think image is the original like seven kind of books they're thinking that like savage dragon and young blood are what image does which kind of amazes me i'm like i don't understand how you go into a comic book shop at all and get your comics and don't know 
know, even if you're not into it, that you don't know what Image is about now. You know what I mean? That's kind of astonishing. We have this nurse in the book. He's this really evil nurse. And uh, I had a guy come up to me a couple of shows. He's like, I'll buy any page that has that, that nurse on it. So I, I wrote, Nick, Nick, can you write me some nurse scenes, please? <laughs> and he did. And I sold all those pages. So I was like, like thanks, man. And so, like, you know, he, he does care. <laughs> uh, he, he writes a lot of talking heads because I think he is, like, the world's biggest Chris Claremont fan. So he, he will give me a break. He's been throwing more splash pages in. And, you know, he's like, here, I know you can sell this. <laughs> so he, he's, uh, he listens in that regard. But if I'm like, Casey shouldn't have kicked Ike in the nuts or whatever, he's like, you know, he wouldn't listen to that. That's, you know, that's important to the story. What's important for us on Great Pacific was to, to establish uh, a, a look that was pretty signature early on. I mean, it's, a, it's about a guy out on a giant floating island of trash. So, you know, my poor artist, I mean, Martin Marazzo is, is, you know, has to kill himself every month, but I, he tells me he loves it, meticulously drawing every last bit of plastic and garbage that makes up this place. And um, we try to throw in one double-page spread per issue. It's just kind of visual branding. And for me, that's an extension of building, you know, my own brand, my own expectations that people might have out of these creator-owned books that I do, Great Pacific being the biggest one at Image at the moment. How detailed are your scripts that you give to Martine for Great Pacific? Because there's a lot of visual detail in there and a lot of specific stuff that seems like it would need a lot of reference. I include a lot of reference in the scripts, a lot of photo reference. Um, and I, I kind of go into it with the understanding that, I mean, I see a page pretty clearly. I come into this, I'm a filmmaker also, so I, for my own purposes, I feel like I'm, I'm directing the movie on paper. However, he knows and anyone that works with me knows that I don't expect someone to do exactly what I told them to do. I want you to see what I had in mind and then you come back to me with what you think you could do differently. Or And it is very collaborative, but I tend to give him pretty detailed scripts. I mean, for a 22-page story, my scripts might run 45, 50 pages long. But I mean, sometimes I, I kick myself over that because it takes longer to turn that out, obviously. And But yeah, to answer your question, I mean, I, I enjoy putting in screen captures from movies that I think capture not necessarily the, the shot that I'm looking for, but just the, the moment that I'm, that I'm going for. Things like that I, I throw in a lot. I like to be surprised. I, I think that's the best part of any creative collaboration is when you, you think you know what you want and you, you go into a collaboration with somebody, either whether you're a director and an actor or an artist and a writer, and you get back all these little nuances that you never expected, and that just adds so much to the story and going forward that inspires you to take that into account and leave room for more of those great happy accidents. Yeah, it's interesting working with Trad, how Spartan my scripts to him have gotten. Like, as he can tell you, if there, it's at this point, it's like a sentence a panel <laughs> at best, because like we're really insane. That makes me jealous. Yeah, and I, I just want to, I'm like, eh, fuck it, Trad will figure it out. <laughs> so, you know, fundamental laziness. I got a question for Trad. I don't, maybe I don't want to know the answer to this, but... Uh, how in the hell do you find reference for the stuff that you do, man? I mean, uh, I imagine you're on some kind of FBI watch list. Yeah, uh, there was a time where I looked at a lot of dead people videos and stuff, and it just makes you really depressed really fast. So I don't do that anymore, but I actually look at a lot of like, like medical anatomy books, because that way it's like 
flayed flesh and stuff, but it's it doesn't make you feel gross. So, yeah. Petra, when she went into the armory, why did she leave without two perfectly good gun blades? <laughs> That's a very good question. No, uh, Justin doesn't care that I throw in all sorts of nerdy references to everything. So yeah, anytime uh, I can throw Final Fantasy or uh, Resident Evil references in anything, or basically video game stuff all around. If you ever see a picture in a frame, it's probably like a screenshot from Shadow of the Colossus or something. Like as well. um, So yeah, a lot of times people will tell Justin like, oh man, that reference you put in there for that, and Justin won't even know what they're talking about. Uh, but he just agrees with it. So yeah, uh, I figured it was an armory, and why not put Dragon Balls and Final Fantasy stuff in there? <laughs> see, that's what Petra gets for being the wrong kind of nerd. She didn't realize the wealth of stuff she had at her fingertips. Um, there's actually kind of a running thing in there is that Petra loves guns, but she's terrible with them. So she's actually p picking out the stuff that's flashiest and awesome. So that's kind of why she ends up with the weapons she does when she goes to the armory. So Ming, with uh, Mara, since it's set in a futuristic thing, did Brian have a lot of specific, like, how that stuff was supposed to look like the technology and you know the uniforms and all that kind of stuff or did he kind of leave that to you he left that entirely to me which is one of the things i liked and also i told him that i didn't like uh drawing technology or buildings or cityscapes or anything and he was like great because that's the entire <laughs> book so just draw it however you can make peace with it and actually i ended up really liking drawing technology and cityscapes as long as it doesn't look like anything that you've ever seen before so i really appreciated that but um when he was pitching the story to me, he used a couple of keywords, uh, and he was like, just think Starship Troopers. I was like, you sold. You have me. Let's, let's draw this comic. And now, here's a couple clips from the Dark Horse panel. Eric Powell, Sanford Green then next to him, Becky Cloonan, and Matt Kent. Why don't we go through uh, each of you talking about uh, your experience with Dark Horse, like first experiences being published there and where you are now. Start with Matt. The first book I did with Dark Horse was Three Story, Secret History of the Giant Man. And it was just a graphic novel, and then I finished that, and I went on some other things. And then I got a call from Mike Richardson. He's like, hey, why aren't we doing your next book? Um, and I was like, well, my next book is like a, I want to do like a 54-issue limited series called Mind Management, and, uh, and you, you won't do it. And he's like, well, send me the pitch. So I sent him the pitch, and then he read it, and then he's like, well, let's do it. I was like, are you kidding? That was easy. Yeah. <laughs> honestly, it really was. And, and, and mind management, honestly, couldn't have happened anywhere else. You know, Vertigo has ads in the middle and on the back of the cover. And I don't, didn't want that, you know. But I wanted to do my own fake ads on the back cover and have weird stuff on the sides of the pages and do different weird things with the format of monthly books that, no, that you know, there's no other publisher that um, either had the money to do it or, you know, they're so big that they would never approve anything of the crazy ideas I wanted to do. So, you know, Dark Horse is great that way. I got my start doing fill-in issues of Angel, the Buffy spinoff, and trying to break in and hopefully <laughs> thinking that they were going to give me the book at some point because the artist was going to screw up too much, but that never happened. And then <laughs> I honestly, I wasn't suited for it. I, I'm not suited for drawing really attractive people and, <laughs> and hip clothes and stuff. Just the likenesses I can never get right. No, I, I did Charisma Carpenter. I did a sketch of her to get approval to do the book. And I was like, I worked really hard on the likeness. The likeness was fine. But I drew her in kind of like a tank top and pants, you know, and it's kind of like average lady. And she was like, no. 
And so they said, well, try it again. So I went back and there was some comment about it. She wasn't sexy enough or something. So then I drew her in like some mini skirt or something, and, but it was the exact same face. And they're like, okay. And, and so that was, I just wasn't suited for it. And uh, around the time all the Buffy work for me started drying up, uh, they were also canceling the original Dark Horse Presents. And the first time The Goon was published by Dark Horse was in the very last issue of the original Dark Horse Presents. And I always felt like, great, I killed Dark Horse Presents. <laughs> Talking about uh, Fabulous Killjoys, from what I've read so far, I, I describe it as a kind of um, dystopian road warrior, yet a little bit of Repo Man kind of yeah, element to it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Cool. There's, a lot, there's a little bit of Blade Runner in there, too. Yeah. yeah if any of that sounds appealing to you should check it out. It's nerve-wracking because this is like, you know, since 2009 I've been working on this book and then next week it's coming out like, everyone's going to hate it. It's been years of my life. Uh, I'm like stage fright right now. Dark Horse, I guess, they seem like a pretty supportive place. Uh, I mean, Eric, you got away with uh, Satan's Sodomy Baby, for example. I mean, they only published it once, but, you know, they did it. Yeah, and, and that's what I always say. They did not want to do that book. Yeah. Did not. Mike did not want to do it. He told me it was going to ruin my career. He vehemently didn't want to do it, but who published it? I mean, that says a lot to me. That's yeah. why I'm like, I, I'm not leaving Dark Horse. I mean, it's like they thought it was wrong, didn't want to do it, but at the end of the day, the creator wanted to do it, so I said, all right, fine. That is really cool of them. That yeah. says a lot. It seems like they, they occupy a really valuable place in the ecosystem of comics. You know, we're, we're an insular community, and they've got some big licensed books that they could pull people in and be like, oh, get, the, get their brand out there, and, and in turn, be able to support independent artists doing what they want to do. Eric, you did that, uh, that recent goon issue with uh, that lampooned all Marvel and DC's marketing techniques. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, who was it? Dark Horse. They let you modify their logo on the front of the cover and everything. Well, that, that was actually um, one of the editor's idea, the logo thing. But once he said it, I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, why don't we do the peel thing that, the, that DC is doing, but have a Band-Aid? And I was like, oh, my God. That's the best thing in the book, and I didn't come up with it. <laughs> they never really question anything. Thing I throw in the book, and they pretty much leave me alone to do what I want to do, which is is nice. They'll make suggestions, like, "Do you really want to do that?" I'm like, "Yeah." They're like, "Okay, <laughs> go ahead." I'm a horrible salesperson. Like, making a pitch for the goon was a nightmare because it's like, well, it's just, you know, it's just like a guy from the looks like the 30s, but it's not the 30s, and he like punches monsters and stuff, and it's real funny, and but it's kind of sad sometimes, and it's like. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> It's kind of what we're having, the problem we're having with the movie right now. Everyone's just kind of going like, what do we compare it to? What else is just like this that made money? Well, that's the point. It's not like all the other stuff. I'm trying to do something different. So, yeah, I, I definitely prefer doing my own stuff. All right. Books that we've read recently, things that are awesome, things that you dear listeners need to check out. Joe Harris's X-Files, season 10 just started recently. If your head's been in the dirt over this, there's many X-Files comics out there over time. This is actually in continuity. This is the real deal. Chris Carter's name is on this book. This is season 10 of X-Files. It's just like Buffy, 100% authentic. It's canon. Yeah. Issue one so far, I mean, I just can't wait for issue two. Right. It, it's, it's, it's killing me. I want, I want it all. You know, X-Files is on uh, Netflix right now. It's instant satisfaction, but this is coming out month to month. It's killing me. Right. And it was just a perfect first issue. It was great, you know? Like, you don't need any contrived reason to get the band back together. You just need to put Scully in danger, you know? Dude, Lone Gunman are on the cover of issue two. 
What the hell does that what, mean? What do you mean they're on the cover issue two? It's not a spoiler to describe the cover. Uh, there's a, there's a number of covers. So I mean, the, in, the, in the world of variants, which one are you talking? The about? cover where they're all dead and it's their three graves. That cover, right? <laughs> That's ridiculous. Have you yeah. seen that cover? Yes, I have. That's ridiculous. Maybe they fake their death. I mean. That's plenty of conspiracy stuff is faking deaths, so we'll see. But well, still, there's, when, there's I, when some I saw stuff that, that happened in that season that make that really hard to believe, but we'll find out. Well, yeah, I I just wanted to not piss off the people who are like, spoiler. Whether they ever watch an X Files episode or not, <laughs> Joe Harris really, really showed improved with this. You know, it was yeah. good. Yeah, it was great. Scott Snyder's uh, Batman Year Zero, starting at issue twenty one. It's great. We've kind of needed to see this. Six years ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we need to see this on page for a while. This is the, um, the comic book equivalent of Batman Begins. You can bet your ass it's going to be a thousand times cooler than that movie, which was, you know, good for its time, but does not hold up. What I want to mention about that is the backup. Oh, my God. Like, I never thought of where Bruce Wayne got his training and how to evade police chases in the Batmobile. You know, he, he always evades the police with no problem. Where did he learn that skill, you know? And this, he's actually trained by... One of the best getaway, you know, car chase dudes, like a, a criminal, like a, a total hard-boiled cop-killing criminal. He gets his training from that dude, Bat Bruce Wayne, age nineteen. And I was like, dude, I would love to see a Smallville like that, right. like Bruce Wayne, age nineteen, and, st- <laughs> and it's just him going all around the world, gaining skills that he will later use as Batman. Yeah, but I, I'm not going to spoil the ending of it. But it was a great eight pages, and it was just something I never thought about before that obviously Scott Snyder thought about, and it was a great little story. The Snyder's backups with uh, James Tynan the fourth are always really cool. I picked up some uh, some indies while at Heroes Con. I always like to do that every time. Becky Cloonan has a new book out called Demeter. It's really really great. If you can pick it up online, we'll have a link to it on this episode's page. All of her um, her self published shorts are really incredible. If you dig like Northlanders, you got to check these out. And though they're really great in print, uh, they're actually on Comixology now. She oh, broke a cool. deal with them. So uh, I picked up something from uh, from her main squeeze. <laughs> right. Uh, it's a book called Black Church. It uh, Aaron showed me. The guy's name is uh, Andy Bellinger. It uh, it actually comes in a seven inch record sleeve. It's and the book is appropriately square sized. And it's also again, if you like Northlanders, you'll love this. It's all mythic Vikingy Middle Ages kind of stuff with boobs, boobs, uh, There's sperms, even boobs on the cover. Some kind of gypsy boobs on the cover of this. So uh, it's, Those are the best kind. It's really cool. Uh, it's called Black Church. You should uh, check it out if you can. I also picked up a couple uh, really indie indies. I'm talking about Xerox kind of indies by uh, someone named Liz Suburbia, and I really like them. She had a whole random selection of them. They, these were kind of all over the place. They're all really short, but uh, they're cool. One's called um, Cyanide Milkshake. Uh, and it's like a bunch of shorts. There's one about two people trapped in a uh, a van during a zombie apocalypse who are going to kill each other, but then just start fucking. And then there's one called... Wait, is that same sex or... Uh, no, no, no. Because that one cover looks pretty gender fluid. Yeah, well, no, she, she's got a lot of that, but no, it, it's a, a dude and a lady in the, the van situation nice. specifically. Um, Turbo Mutt also picked that up. There's a lot of random, curious, uh, alternative fucking of various varieties in that. I guess it's th- th- that one more than the others is just kind of a porn comic, actually. But, uh, you know, check it out if, if that's your thing. Uh, the drawings are like really, they're both like grungy and also cute at the same time, which is a good combination. It's the type of like, uh, porn in quotes where it's like just fun artistic expression, not, you know, I want to do this and show titties so dudes that can't get laid by it, you know? Right. Kind of like um, uh, Small Favors by Colleen Coover. Other mainstream stuff. Oh my God. Uncanny Avengers. Holy yeah. crap. They just unveiled 
um, these these apocalypse twins. This is con- the very complicated story going on right now. But they just unveil these horsemen of death uh, for the Marvel universe. Four death. The four horsemen four, of death. There as in like there's four horsemen and they are all death. Yes. <laughs> and they are dead characters from the Marvel universe, done in a way that doesn't feel forced or anything like what usually happens with X Men stuff. Right. Um. And uh, I I was looking through this lineup and just. First, I stopped myself. I was like, oh fuck, wow! And then I looked again at it, and this is just said, oh fuck, when I realized who all was involved in it. Right, and it's uh, two Avengers characters and two X Men characters, just like you know, Uncanny Avengers is half X Men, half Avengers, and it's cool. Uh, one of them was a character that Reminder killed in uh, his Uncanny X Force run, and one of them is a character that's crazy awesome that that he's back one is a character he killed in this run yeah but um and one is a long time in relative terms to x-men coming back to life long time dead x-men character character who it's it's weird that given everything that's happened this character hasn't come back yeah i I don't think he came back in necrotia no didn't yeah so So, uh (laughs) it's man it's it's cool that uncanny avengers is a very very neat book and has a lot of oh fuck moments and even though the first couple issues other than the um Xavier Red Skull brain thing seem more of a Avengers type thing, more of a traditional type superhero story. It's gotten to be the weird, wackadoo kind of sci-fi, pulpy kind of horror-y stuff you expect from Rick Remender. Right. Like it, it's, it's bled into that very much so. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the only thing we have left to talk about is uh, Superman Unchained. Uh, it's by Scott Snyder and uh, Jim Lee. If you want to read a Superman book, it's probably your best option right now. Right. So there's that. I've actually read issue two on Jim Lee's personal iPad. Oh. So, because, <laughs> so, you know, I met him at the road show. I was yeah. with him. You know, I've met him before, but, you know, every time you meet a celebrity, it's the first time because they don't remember you. So anyway, I was like, that new character you have in there, that, that's majestic, right? You're, you're working in your Wildstorm creation into the storyline. He's like, no, I'm not. I'm like, come on, man. I know that's your character, Majestic. They've tried to work him in the Superman universe before pre-New 52. It's like, yeah, no, this is a new character. It's this, you know, character called Wrath and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, oh, really? And he's like, yeah, you should see, you know, it looks like he has sperm on him. Like, what, what, you know, what's that look? And he's like, no, that was just him coming out of the thing and the blah, blah, blah. He's like, let me show you. And he pulls it up and I'm just reading it on his iPad, which is cool that it's done colored everything, yeah. you know? The first issue, I just, I like Scott Snyder's writing. I like his stuff of the characters, that little tick he has in his writing where every character reflects upon their childhood in in the voiceover narration. (laughs) In every book he does from like uh, American Vampire to Batman to Superman to all that, you know? Yeah. So I I dig his writing and of course it's the best Superman book on the stands now. And um, there's never going to be any question really. Right. Because I mean, come on. (laughs) But anyway, I enjoyed it. And I think it's only going to get better as Scott Snyder is the type of writer that kind of builds that roller coaster. I, and I, I know we said Superman was the last thing, but I just realized, oh my God, Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron, uh, this is not a spoiler. This is something that is, I hope, unavoidable. I'm not going to discuss the ending of that story arc, but the end of the series, time gets so fractured that basically the, the entire universe burps yes. and all of a sudden things aren't right anymore marvel 616 galactus ends up in ultimate universe and miles morales sees his big shadow like yeah. hovering over new york and and this really isn't a spoiler per se because ultimate hunger has already been solicited right of the 616 galactus in the ultimate universe eating sections of the ultimate universe eating planets and galaxies and whatnot it's in the solicitation copy yeah. you know so this is going to be cool <laughs> yeah and um there's a, a book, I guess it's called uh, AI or something. Yes. Uh, 
uh, and it's about Hank Pym building a better artificial intelligence. It's it's all relating to Ray Kurzweil's singularity. Like there's a there's a tagline in I, forget, I can't remember the exact tagline, but it's uh, something uh, to do with the singularity. And uh, I guess that the singularity is is here. Let's welcome it or something like that. So that's that's going to be really neat because you know he built Ultron in basically the 1960s. Ultron, a lethal artificial intelligence, and the singularity as a concept is all about the point at which artificial intelligence naturally in the human in the basic human world reaches a point where it is truly a sentient thing and in the marvel universe especially where their their technology is through the roof this is a gonna be a pretty pretty complicated issue and very interesting book to see how they're gonna pull this off yeah i read it it's cam humphreys wrote it and um the doombot character steals every scene he's in it's pretty fun yeah but it's great as the victor character that's um ultron's son from runaways Oh yeah, yeah, he's That's in awesome. it and Vision, and and it was cool. It was a cool issue, but Doombot's ridiculous. I can't wait to read it. That's that sounds really awesome. Um, and then the other mindfuck is uh, Angela. The lawsuit is finally over, and Neil Gaiman got the rights back to Angela. Uh, from and from seems like Todd he McFarlane sold it or gave it to Marvel. Because, yeah, just like fuck you. <laughs> yeah, in the Indicia, Marvel says they own all the characters in it. So I mean, there's no italics or no thing like except for Angela by Neil Gaiman. It just all copyright Marvel. So. I, you know, I, be that where what it may. Yeah, it's confusing and weird, <laughs> but um, uh, Wikipedia, that legal battle, if you want some confusing stuff, it's a character who's just been in, in copyright limbo for years that now is all right. of a sudden in the Marvel Universe. So go don't, fig. don't ever do work for hire for your character, blah, 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 ownership. Just get your paycheck when it's work for hire <laughs> and create stuff when it's not work for hire because Neil Gaiman had a whole long yeah. decades of lawsuits over that yeah neil gaiman steve gerber the it list sounds goes cool. on you'd be like no i don't need your money todd mcfarlane just i'll retain ownership of the character i create and it's like nope <laughs> didn't work mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so uh thanks so much for listening guys if you like what you heard we're a listener supported podcast and we need your monetary love in order to survive it's not just this show but the entire network and when you do support us we send you cool perks in the email at the end of the month. And the one we've got uh, coming up for, uh, I think it's going to be available in uh, July. We're actually going to have clips from this episode, outtakes from our interviews, and uh, some outtakes from the panels we were on at Heroes Con. So if you want to check all that out, we have a whole page devoted to a list of all the support perks that are available. And there's new stuff every month. And every time we pass one of our support goals, because you guys are so generous, you push us over the edge and we get more than our bare bones costs. Well, we just turn that right back around and give it back to you guys because more cool stuff comes out. So uh, thanks so much for listening. Bye, I'm Cap. Bye, I'm Aaron. See you next time. Taking us out, Animal Crossing, a new leaf is uh, taking away everybody's lives these days. Uh, not mine, fortunately, but I know lots of people um, who are afflicted with the Animal Crossing, and, uh, you know, I, I don't begrudge them. And hey, the uh, the Animal Crossing villagers coming to Smash Brothers, so that's something, right? Anyway, Adam Warrock, he did a song about Animal Crossing, and it's called The Mayor. The Mayor's in the Shaking trees, yo, picking fruit too. Tell me what the mayor's supposed to do. Buying furniture, 
catching mad fish That ain't a fish, it's just an old boot dude Really though, gonna go recycle it and fish some more Gonna buy a hat at the clothing store and I'll make some more Bells for show, don't you know that? I got some pears to pick, I got some peaches to plant If you a pest, then I'm catching you in a net You dead, at the museum donating the sago tail And Billy, what's up? Yo, I got some presents to put in the mail this is the life of the boss, king of the city Check out these flowers I planted, yo Isn't they pretty, Isabelle? When can I start developing? Got some mansions to build that I wanna put all my fellas in The mayor's in the house The mayor's in the house My shirt? Yeah, designed it myself. Now the Able sisters can't even keep stock on the shelf. The neighbors love me, don't you know that they wanna be me? Get those lines to show mad excitement every time you know that they see me. That's my little dude, Derwin. A lot of like me, yo. And that's my homie, Sheldon, yelling, what up, bro? Cardio! Man, Mr. Nook, I know I got this mortgage right. But that bill can wait, cause I got some more furniture for us to buy. It's all day and all night making them bells. It's all Seashells to sell It's all day and all night up in my city I'ma toss you out my town If you ain't with me The mayor's in the house The mayor's in the house Thanks for listening to Nerdy Show. Nerdy Show is made possible by A Comic Shop, Nerdapalooza, and the generous support of listeners like you. As listener-supported entertainment, we rely on you to keep this and other shows on the Nerdy Show Network alive by telling a friend, rating and reviewing us on iTunes, or making a contribution in our monthly support drives. Any size contribution gets you exclusive Nerdy Show voxophones and pictograms. Just go to nerdyshow.com support to chip in. For more episodes of Nerdy Show, as well as other fine programs, community forums, kinetoscopes, articles, and more, head over to nerdyshow.com. You can subscribe to all Nerdy Show Network podcasts via the iTunes Store. And for the latest news, follow us on all your favorite social networks. It's sodom yet it's like mm-hmm. if you actually spell it out it's like sodomy at so it's like sodomy <laughs> at gmail.com it's just like seriously that, like i can't see his name without seeing that you know it says a lot about you yeah. <laughs> Go, well hold on who, who created him uh alan moore yes right so mm-hmm. is are you surprised that was alan moore predicting uh the internet email and and, and google taking over you know gmail email all that stuff yep and alan moore is is a genius <laughs> A prophet, some might say. <laughs> yes. Yeah.